0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter
1: at Dr. Matt Show. Call
2: the show at 1 855 Chat BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
2: Dr. Matt Townsend now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
3: Good morning, everybody. Top of the morning to you. Welcome to the show. My name is Matt Townsend, your host, your coach. Your guide on the side. We do what we can on this program to give you the tools to live a healthier... Today we're even going to talk about longer, happier life. Welcome to the program. You know, it's an, interesting, uh, it's an interesting world we're living in. Holy cow. Just when you think ISIS is the biggest threat, they may not be. It may be, you know, motorcycle gangs. They might be maybe taking over. What in the world
0: happened in Texas? Waco, Texas, a sports bar. Uh, a sports bar of all places. Uh, Sunday afternoon, everyone's having lunch. Or, sure, you know, you know whatever you want to call it. Maybe maybe it's an extended Sunday brunch. An extended brunch because brunch <laughs> is supposed to be before lunch, but yeah. you know whatever. Uh, so. Apparently, anywhere from reports I've seen are anywhere from two to five biker gangs. Wow. Were in this restaurant all at the same time. Well, R- rivalries all over the place. Maybe it was like an association meeting. No, okay. I, 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 it didn't read that way. It okay. felt like they're all, at one point, they're there. Um, kind of testing this this sort of we're not afraid of being in your territory type of situation yeah so they're 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 trying to provoke some sort of reaction from I didn't others. know
1: biker gangs love brunches this much maybe this is probably like the first annual biker's brunch
0: of Texas brunch <laughs> didn't work out very well the last also yeah biker's brunch so in the end, nine people dead, oh, my 18 heavens. others injured, after a dispute involving three rival gangs. This story said three, another one I said possibly five. Uh, erupted into gunfire at this Waco, Texas restaurant. The Department of Public Safety in Texas troopers, as well as police from several nearby cities, surrounded the restaurant after several people were reported shot during the fight. Holy cow. Police recovered more than 100 weapons from the restaurant. Several vehicles reportedly have bullet holes in them. Uh, Swanson, who's the, uh, the police sergeant on scene said no officers or civilians were injured as of early Monday. Police were working to ensure there were no risk of additional retaliation by bike gang members oh, of the Waco yeah. area. What they're worried about is, uh, after it had happened, the, uh, the police were in the area. This story from, um, NBC news, uh, says that the, 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 the fight Progressed really rapidly, and really fast. The shooting actually took place in a quick, like minute, two minute time span. Holy cow! But Nine it said dead. the police, there were police actually in the parking lot, expecting oh. problems because well, yeah. all these bikes are there. All these, they they knew they, these guys are known criminals. Two hundred bikers, they're all in the same area. So the police were in the parking lot, and when the guys came out the door, they were, a couple of them were shooting at each other. Then they just started shooting out in the parking lot, and so the cops, of course, returned fire. And there's more cops than them. Do we know?
3: if Did police officers shoot some of them?
0: Do we know? Yes. Oh, really? Yes. I this, thought they were this, all shooting each other. Well, some of them were shooting each other. There's knife wounds. There's, and then the cops returned fire because yeah, well, they were being it. shot at. Yeah. So it was over rather fast, but it's still just all kinds of chaos. Uh, so so uh,
3: Sons of Anarchy is not just a movie. No. Apparently there are biker gangs still. I mean, in the 70s, it was huge. Yes. Hells Angels, those kind of guys.
0: And these are fulfilling whatever stereotype that you possibly have for a biker gang. That's what happened. Do they have long beards and leather jackets? The the, the pictures I saw had a cop standing there with automatic weapons and- All these guys in leather vests from the biker gangs, all sitting around waiting for the cops to come and where to go. But what they said is nearly 100 weapons were recovered, including brass knuckles, chains, clubs, switchblades, firearms, and they're just all over the place because people drop their weapons. But it just turned into complete chaos. And one of the groups involved, they say, are the Banditos or, po- or some of the group, Banditos and Cossacks, are two of the. Oh yeah, the groups. them are bad gangs. And it says a 2014 gang or uh, gang threat assessment by the Texas Department of Public Safety classified the Banditos as a tier two threat, the second highest. Other groups in that tier include the Bloods, Crips, and the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas. Oh wow! Along with a biker gang, and they say the they're Aryan
3: Brotherhood in, of Texas is a yeah. biker gang, huh?
0: No, no, no! They're not a biker. They're, they're, they're just another they're just, group.
3: Yeah. I'm like they—they they drive in cars.
0: But yeah, but the banditos are on the same tier of threat level. Oh man! The banditos are, are involved in trafficking cocaine, marijuana, and methamphetamine. So, you just know some what? bad guys. Bad guys hanging out at, guys. A, at a restaurant. <laughs> Maybe that's what we need to do because we don't want to send troops into you know Iraq.
3: Maybe we just need to send these biker gangs. Send those guys. Yeah. Apparently send they're... like three of them from different gangs, warring gangs, and then drop them. They're ready to Just go. Drop it sounds them like, into Ramadi at a moment's notice. <laughs> they'll start one bar at a time,
0: clearing Ramadi for us. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. So, who'd have thunk that story will go on? They're worried this morning as as I was reading there about the retaliation from other yeah gang oh, yeah. members and you know so they'll uh, that, Plus, that's that story is that's ongoing.
3: some great press yeah for some of these gangs they're like we made the big news
0: we have openings now
3: <laughs> that's unbelievable.
0: Also over the weekend, uh, the Boston bomber. Yes. Jokar Zarnaev, he was sentenced to uh, death? Sentenced to
3: death, which is surprising to me. I didn't know that, I didn't think he'd get that. Why is that? Well, I thought that, you know, they'd rather send him to that maximum security prison, which is like death, and do that for the next. Because there's already two or three terrorists in Mm -hmm. this maximum security. You'd think Sarnoff would be the next guy. Possibly. I mean, you know, they don't want to. This is why the, the state wouldn't have convicted him, right? Yeah. They don't have the, the death penalty in Boston. This is a federal
0: right. crime, so they were able to you know try him on federal rules. Um, according to reports that I read over the weekend, the average inmate that's on death row spends at least 15 years there yeah. before the sentence is carried mm, yeah. out. Hmm. So he'll be around for a he'll while. He'll
3: be going to Indiana here.
0: Um, Amtrak announced Sunday service between uh, Philadelphia and New York. We'll resume this morning. This morning, starting up. Trains are back on schedule six days after the train derailed. uh, Over the weekend, the train company announced it has installed speed controls, in which forces trains to slow down to, like, I think 45 miles an hour around that specific area where the the train That would have been handy. Would have been handy. The more interesting development came from an interview with an assistant conductor who said she thought she had heard conductor Bastian, that was the guy that's been interviewed, say that before the train crashed, the train's windshield had been hit or broken by something, hmm. reports in the Philadelphia Inquirer. We have seen damage to the left-hand lower portion of the Amtrak windshield that we have asked the FBI to come and look at for us as the NTSB. Uh, prior to the crash, where the trains in the area had been hit by some kind of projectile. And the, pi- the pictures of the windshield, they're, they're saying it's about a softball-sized item. Hit it. And it hit the windshield. So they're trying to and, – and yesterday on one of the Sunday morning shows uh, – the same NTSB director said that they can confirm it wasn't a bullet, so, so someone wasn't shooting at it, but somebody possibly threw but something how at. How would train. that have altered the speed? Just distracted the driver. Well, he got hit in the. There was he was cut in the head. He had like fourteen stitches. Oh, in his so head. they're wondering if it hit so, him. Well, they haven't. No one official has said anything. It speculation as possibly did something enter through the windshield, hit him in the head. Interesting. And did he fall down? But it doesn't look like the windshield was shattered. So yeah, but he doesn't anything remember it anything, it. right? That's what he says.
3: But he but he was speeding up, and then he still was braking.
0: Well, at the last second, they yeah. said he grabbed the brake. Oh man! So there's all these different you know elements that yeah. they know about, but how does it all fit together? That's right. Don't know. Plus, then,
3: another train in the area, right? Another train also was hit by Possibly
0: an, uh, two other trains.
3: So two, oh, really? So, this is, so there's something else going on.
0: There might be somebody out there throwing something at the trains.
3: I mean, little but kids. But did that, did
0: that cause yeah, no. the accident? Did it cause the actions that he did? Um, also new this morning, President Obama is announcing new limits on federal transfers of military-style weapons and other equipment to local police forces. Part of an effort to demilitarize police and increase public right. trust no in law more enforcement. for the inner cities. Yeah, so... As it goes on here, it says uh, uh the uh, heavy handed crackdowns try, try to and those effective immediately. the federal government will no longer finance or sell tracked armored vehicles, weapons or ammunition of fifty caliber or higher camouflage uniforms, grenade launchers, bayonets, and the feds will consider ways to get back such equipment if it's handed those over to police forces in the past. Wow, yeah, why would you need a bigger than a fifty millimeter Cal- or, yeah
3: cartridge or whatever. That's a 50 like caliber, uh 50 caliber. I mean that's machine like, gun is kind of overkill. Isn't right? it like to bring an airplane down? You can. Jeez. Well, that's uh but you know what, again, we had all this surplus. So do you just toss all the surplus
0: or we just leave it in Afghanistan like we did. Yeah, and let give it
3: to ISIS. Yeah,
0: they're finding great uses ISIS for it. Need, yeah,
3: they're loving our Hummers.
0: And now our pilots are bombing the Hummer. Yeah, get, they're finding they're, oh, there's there's an you know anti tank vehicle. Let's take well, that what's,
3: out. We're going to figure out
1: how to destroy our own equipment. Yes, or just lose it. Just that so too. So you you know know it's a lot it's
0: a of it's been lost too. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard to find some of these things. And ISIS got theirs because the Iraqi army just. Yeah. Got up and ran and left him sitting there. They, so I, I heard him. they
3: left him on and running so that they'd be warm when they got they in. Could have done that too. <laughs> you don't want to have to, you know, have a cold Hummer to take over. Interesting stuff, folks. Uh, good. Wow, crazy news. They're back. The biker gangs are back. Maybe they never left. The Cossacks, huh? Hmm. And the banditos. Ah, oh, reminds me of like West Side Story. Like they're going to break into song or something. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Joe Cannon, our Washington insider, will be joining us. Joe is uh, hes the guy we turn to just to help us clear our political heads. He's very well uh, integrated into um, Washington, knows the ins, the outs, what's going on there. We've got a lot of different questions for him. Coming up, Joe Cannon from uh, FuelFreedom.org. Up next, right here on the Matt Townsend Show, giving us a political overview Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, in the house with us, Joe Cannon is joining us, and Joe, you know, he's he doesn't love it when we call him the Washington Insider, but he's much he's much more in the know than any of us are. He uh, was past chairman of the Utah Republican Party, also was a candidate for U.S. Senate, served as an assistant administrator of the U.S. EPA agency under the Reagan uh, administration. Also, was a, a editor for Deseret News, uh, a major um, newspaper here in the Intermountain West. Joe Cannon, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt, thanks for
2: having me. Great to have you. You went to China. You're back. Yeah, yeah. China is. I mean, it's not our subject today, but uh, uh, I've been to China lots of times before. But it's an amazing place. Well, I hear it's, it's, it's just it's, beautiful. You know, I was in a in a. I've spent very little time in Beijing or Shanghai, but I spent quite a bit of time in a couple of the more provincial cities. But even the city I was in last week, many people have never heard of it. It's called Kunming. You know, between six and eight million people oh live heavens. in this city. a you know? huge city.
4: Yeah.
2: And yet it's
3: just one of their small little areas. They're yeah. Their I mean
2: it's, it's, it's the provincial capital yeah. of, of this particular uh, – uh, of the Yunnan province. but But still – you know, it's just amazing. It's six thousand five hundred feet elevation. It's it's by, it borders uh, Vietnam, Laos, really? you know, Burma, and Tibet. So, it's oh, wow, in, it's moving toward yeah. the mountains. And it, was, it was a beautiful city. It was very pleasant. And a, Is it, and it a lot of people? <laughs> it, 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 no, in
3: fact, maybe let's reverse everything I okay. told you we were going to do because okay. you're, here you are in China, and we think of China as kind of being um, a you know kind of beautiful, but just really polluted really gross mm-hmm. is it is it as is it as dirty and polluted as we hear in the news and, well, and is the united states as clean and I mean, where where do we fit in relation to them
2: like, uh if you're were determining where to live and your sole criteria was uh, uh air quality yeah. you would never live in china is it just dirty yeah. air yeah. Now. Of course some cities are way worse than others and some are quite quite yeah. good. you know, the more rural you get, the better the air quality is. Of course the worse everything else gets. Right, right. But but um yeah, no, I I spent a lot of time uh, in a city called Zibo which is kind of midway between uh um Shanghai and Beijing. Mm-hmm. And in in an industrial province, Shandong province and filthy. Is absolutely it absolutely filthy? filthy. And you know, China talks a pretty good game but they're building you know like well, some people say it's a power plant a week it's it's not that but they're building many dozens of power plants a year big huge, yeah, huge. coal-fired like coal power burning, plants yeah. you know cuz they've got a lot of coal so uh, you, you know the, the the good news about that is that is that every chinese person recognizes this is a problem mm-hmm. and so and, and and in fact in the case of a lot of air pollution, people die when yeah, the high concentrations like of particulate matter. I mean, it's clearly life expectancy is much, much uh, lower in China than it is in any Western yeah. country.
3: You sent mm-hmm. us an article that um, I thought was fascinating. It's huge, by the way. You, a little light reading for Joe Cannon is 20 pages with full graphs. <laughs> wow. but, but talk to us. I mean, our, how are we doing in the United States when it comes to EPA, when it comes to, I mean, just our environmental – concerns. It seems like we're a fairly green country.
2: We are. We are a fairly green country. We're, we're quite a green country compared to almost every other pretty country. Trevor Burrus, pretty much every other yeah.
3: country. The, uh, but then we, it's almost like we don't get credit. It's like we're not –
2: we hear that we're not but we well, people, like people like to focus on the current and most negative problems. So, so we have not conquered air, air pollution in the United right. States. Uh, having said that, though, I, I remember growing up. I hate to say my age like this, but <laughs> in in the California, Los Angeles, in the nineteen fifties, and of course I've been back many, 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 many times since. But it was just funny. Just a couple of summers ago, I was back in the summer high area, yeah. and you could see the you could, San Gabriel Mountains with could total see clarity. Mm-hmm. Now. All the time I was growing up, I knew that there were mountains. I was aware of the fact that there were mountains to the east of Los <laughs> Angeles. But they were never like a fact like you some places – where you live in Montana mm-hmm. or Utah or other places where you, the mountains are a big part of, of your life. So so there's demonstrable evidence that air quality is actually vastly better, yeah. uh, however you want to measure it. Um there are other things, water quality. You know, I, I'm not sure I drink tap water in most countries, but in the U.S., you're perfectly safe drinking tap yeah. water. People say it could be better and it could be, but it's way better than it was I mean, we're, in we're, 1970.
3: We're almost more worried if it's over-fluoridated over or over – Yeah, different. Yeah. I mean it's like – I don't know. It's like we worry about
2: weird things it seems like to me, excesses. You take life expectancy though, yeah, so life expectancy that takes all things into account in in uh for males uh for us, you know starting in well, if you just take nineteen fifty life expectancy's increased by twenty years since nineteen fifty yeah, and that's my my in my own lifetime, but you look at um twenty years starting in eighteen fifty. Huh. Life expectancy was thirty eight. <laughs> now it's almost eighty. I'd be this good. So double It's more it's yeah. doubled basically since eighteen fifty. So when you look around things things there are a lot of reasons to think things are better. So that particular story that I sent you is a, one reason it caught my attention. It's a, a really a smart guy, a, a professor at Rockefeller University and. You know, he starts out talking about a bear attack killed somebody, and yeah. you wonder why, why is that relevant. And I say, well, because bears haven't been around for a long time, and That's all right. of a sudden, all kinds of wildlife populations are coming back, and and, and yeah, in, to the point we have to worry about. Yeah, it now. yeah, now it's now it's an issue, but you know, because they've been really crowded out by agriculture, yeah. by forestry,
3: we're, and we're protecting them with yeah. different laws and yeah. different. I mean that's – that that is an interesting barometer, isn't it? The animals are seemingly getting more comfortable coming back.
2: But there are are all kinds of things. I mean the point of this overall article is that we're using – with more people in the United States – because it's focused mostly on the United States. With more people uh, in the US, we're using less and less commodities per person. Uh, we're getting greater and greater yields, uh, crop yields, which means we're farming less and less land. So there's right. more land and this one of this guy's points is that uh, with more uh, arable land out there not being cultivated, it's actually t- t- – it's is like a carbon dioxide sink. Hmm. It's, so, so these green trees and everything that's growing where well, we're not growing corn anymore yeah. for example. They're you know they're they're helping deal with uh, the uh, carbon dioxide problem. So this yeah. is all thanks to Al Gore. <laughs> well, an interesting thing in this story, and he points it out, is is that you know Earth Day started in 1970. Right. And when you look at all the graphs in this guy's article, what you what you see is is that things seem to peak at about 1970. So by by and by every every dimension. I don't. I don't. By the way, I think this is a consequence of, of uh, Earth Day, but what I think is Earth Day was. You know, people were genuinely alarmed at quite a lot right. of
3: things. Well, I mean, imagine just not being able to see the mountains in California. Yeah.
2: So yeah. So or, it's alarming. Or That's... a river catching for the Cuyahoga River in, in Cleveland catching fire because of air pollution. Mm. So, so there were a lot of reasons, but it just turns out now in a backward glance, yeah, that was sort of a peaking point. For a lot of things, and things Mm. have gotten gotten better. I mean, so just—I mean, this is
3: interesting. You were you were an administrator in the EPA then, in the '80s, in 1981.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, this is probably too big of a detail, but it turns out that most of the big uh, uh, environmental statutes, uh, the Clean Air Act was originally passed in 1970, but the real Clean Air Act came with the amendments of 1977, hmm. the Clean Water Act about the same year, uh, Resource Conservation Recovery Act, cleaning up uh, landfills, Superfund. All those statues came about in the late 70s, mm-hmm. early 80s. So they were in response to yeah. the the fears of you know a year earlier. You um, remember all the Superfund sites in like 80s and 90s. Yeah, yeah. You don't hear you much about, even hear about those anymore. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's still some out there by the way. Sure. But, but well, there's a system in place to, to deal you, with it.
3: Do you think we ran too far from the nuclear options of uh, Oh, I, I, I think
2: – and I have some very strong environmentalist friends who agree agree with this. In the 1970s and early 80s, we made a decision that sulfur was really bad but that we were going to allow coal-fired power plants. Right. I'm not I'm not opposed to that necessarily. I'm just saying that was a policy decision. At the same time, we made a policy decision to not pursue nuclear power. Right. That was a devastating mistake from every way that you could measure it. Uh, Nuclear power is clean. Uh, Many people are going to – there are issues with nuclear power. But at the end of the day, nuclear power plants do not emit one molecule of any air pollutant. Not CO2, right. not sulfur dioxide, not nitrogen oxide. It's it, clean. All, all the pollutants that we care about, they don't emit any toxic air pollutants. People in the US worry a lot about storage. But of course, yeah. there are many European a countries. A disaster like we saw in Japan. Th- that's an issue. But no nuclear power plant built today would have failed. Had the failed same problem. In in Japan, so you've got and you know this technology is just proliferating with nuclear power plants. You can build big nuclear power plants, and they're all safer, and everybody recognizes. But France, people don't get about seventy percent of its power from nuclear power plants. Holy cow! Yeah, Uh, Germany. Yeah, we're
3: still really running from it. We we we, the only options that seem to be environmentally friendly are wind and solar, and people
2: people look want to look toward renewable energy, which. Um, here, here's an easy way to think about the about how energy is produced. Think about the the size of the amount of whatever it is that produces the electricity. Mm-hmm. So for nuclear power, you're holding in your hands. Yeah. You wouldn't, of course, hold it in your hands. No, please but, do but, not hold it. But, but you, you, it's a tiny amount of material producing an enormous amount of – generating an enormous amount of electricity. Same with coal, yeah. with uh, petroleum. Those are all – high BTU highly rich mm-hmm. energy Fishing. sources yeah. and and um although I, as you know from my work i mean i'd a lot rather not have so much gasoline out there having said that renewable power has big challenges because to produce if you look at how many acres per kilowatt hour oh, it takes to produce right. and you look at a wind farm or a solar farm it's 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 unimaginably yeah. vast compared to a power plant, yeah. a, a nuclear power plant or, or any power plant, but a nuclear power plant. The other interesting thing about nuclear power is that now there, there are many new – Bill Gates, for example, is behind what's what are called nuclear batteries. You could put like a, a small nuclear facility underground for 30 years. It will run. It won't leak. It won't spill. Uh-huh. It only produces 30 or 40 uh, megawatts. But – now imagine you're in Africa or you're, you're in sure. places where there's no grid. You can now just have this distributed nuclear power that would be, you know, Tanzania. Eighty uh, percent of the people in Tanzania do not have electricity. Unbelievable. Eighty percent, and the ones who do have electricity, right. it's very intermittent. It's interrupted yeah. all the time. So, I mean, anyway. that's
3: that's that's a, a huge solution that would change dramatically.
5: And if, and, and if you're
2: worried about uh, climate change, uh, the simple fact is it is the solution. It yep. is. And an increasing number of environmentalists are recognizing you go that, uh, that, that you, yeah, the, the, you had a, uh, the Republican administrator of EPA, Christy Whitman, and the Clinton-era administrator of EPA, uh, a Democrat, you know, very liberal. Both of them have come out and said, look, we have to, do, we have, to have nuclear power. Mm. Well,
3: we're going to talk more about it with Joe. Joe Cannon is joining us. He's our Washington insider today. He's also our our EPA uh, insider. He's helping us understand a little bit more uh, some of just the benefits and the realities of – our own environment. Maybe we're doing a lot better than we think. When we come back, though, I really want to pick his brain on some political issues. Want to find out uh, what he thinks about the whole George Stephanopoulos uh, giving the money to the Clinton Foundation. All that. All that plus more uh, political news up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show with Joe Cannon. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In the house, Joe Cannon is joining us. He's our Washington insider. He's also the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation, which you can find at fuelfreedom.org, an organization trying to lower the costs of uh, fuel prices, I guess, and oil prices.
2: We want to compete with gasoline with cheaper, cleaner, American-made fuels. Yeah.
3: Well, like, duh. Come on, Joe. That seems like a no-brainer. Okay, so uh, a little political review for us. Give us uh, the the insight. One of the things that seems to be looming, eventually, apparently 16 Republican candidates or so will get into the race. When you have 16 candidates, how on earth do you have a debate? And how do you cull the herd? How do you how do you make it a smaller,
2: realistic debate? Because they're not all they don't all have a chance. No, uh, almost none of them actually has a chance. Right, uh, uh, but turns out reasonable people can disagree about who who that is in that uh, category. One of the problems I'm putting those fear quotes around the word problem right. is that. Jeb Bush has failed, and I think will continue to fail to close everyone out. I mean, people thought he was going to be like yeah, Hillary just, yeah. or like his brother, uh-huh. who basically closed everyone night. and that that's not happening, and I don't think it's going to happen. So, yeah, I mean, really on the debate, just to, to you've only got a few choices. Uh, you're going to have a debate with 16 people, <laughs> yeah. oh. or you're going to f- have to do, do some kind of poll-based arrangement where you have to have a certain threshold. Of uh of polling whether that's in Iowa or the nation as a whole, someone's going to have yeah. to worry about that. But but I will my own personal prediction is you're not going to have 16 people no around by next um, when does the debate start in, in uh, the fall? They'll
3: time. need the money, right? They'll need money by and so, if so some won't be able to get enough yeah, money some to stay in yeah, the game.
2: Yeah. yeah. Carly Fiorina will because she has a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah, a a lot of them won't. They they just won't have legs. And and I, I think the donor base, if you will, it's a, it's not cohesive. They you know I'm sure they know some of them know each other, but over over time, that's going to be the rationalizing factor. They're going to say, you know, uh, I'm sorry, Mike Huckabee. Yeah, this is not your day. This, and yeah. and so. And so I think there'll be some crowd thinking but the 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 problem is you're still going to have. However you do this, you're going to have a big debate with lots of people, and it's going to. I don't think that's. I don't think that's in the interest of the no. Republican Party. Well,
3: especially because the last few uh, go arounds, there was there seemed to be too many debates. Yeah, and it beat up their own candidates. They
2: have thinned that out a lot. and yeah. that's a good. That's a good thing. They've thinned it out, starting later, and you know that that seems a little more rational, but. What's what's your take on Jeb
3: Bush? He had a really difficult week last week trying yeah. to respond to the questions about the the Gulf War and would he do it again and it just seemed like mistake after mistake. It's almost like he's in this weird quandary of
2: supporting his brother but not. Yeah. Um last week could have been fatal for Jeb Bush yeah. in in the in this sense. He could not have not known. How did he not that, know that, that Iraq was, was going to be an issue? Mm-hmm. So, so uh, he, he, and then he didn't handle it. He answered a question, which, when the, I mean, I saw the very first headline. Okay, George, uh, Jeb yeah. agrees with George. Yeah. And then the he, next headline is. Uh, maybe not. And maybe I didn't understand the question. Yeah. Okay. I mean it was – yeah. the way he handled it was – as is often the case, the way he handled it was worse than just having declared, yeah, I support my brother or right. I don't.
3: Right. It, it, well, I mean even, even the, the anchor said she thought even in the moment he misunderstood the question. So even that would have all gone away if he just could have
2: yeah, clarified it. It, it. it kept – it, it, you know, it was that uh, – yeah. it was tearing the band off very, very, very slowly. <laughs> and then putting it back on and then tearing
3: it <laughs> off again, on oh. and off. And then it was almost the hypothetical like – the minute you're arguing about the oh, – well, so are we answering hypotheticals now? The yeah. minute you're going to the questioning or the type of
2: questions, no. you're already in trouble. Yeah. Because that question is perfectly knowable and understandable yeah. and it was your it. brother. That's right. And it's he like, answered it well. I mean yeah. he answered it. Eventually, right. <laughs> yeah. So, it's, but
3: Rubio's now having a similar problem. Is the Gulf War? Are is is the whole Gulf War issue? Just nobody wants to go near it because it seems like such a major failure of a yeah. Republican.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, um, candidates are going to end up saying, you know, we probably would have done it differently yeah. if we had to do it, and you know, that that's you a, have to say that. Yeah, that's I mean, we didn't have
3: the data, yeah. so you have to say that, right? Yeah and and yet the democrats
2: are just quietly well they, I mean, their hillary vote. voted. No, they on have their own they have their own gulf war problem right? Exactly. they they have an <clears throat> iraq problem i mean hillary did vote for the war and there are still people who really really don't like that in in uh, her party so mm. yeah it's uh, it'll be interesting but you know i mean i think a perfectly fair answer is with 2020 hindsight everyone could make perfect decisions yeah. you know so Let's go on. We're, we're, right. we're we stuck there we now. What do we do now? We've yeah. got a problem now. What do we do with that? And there are various answers to that question, but those are all legitimate policy kind of questions.
3: It seems like, too, they're going to have to, somebody's going to have to have a vision of what they want to happen. Instead of everything being about what didn't happen, we need to have a new where vision. Where are we going?
2: What's the, what's the, what's the blueprint yeah. for the future? And right? are they all just
3: holding off, like waiting for this thing really to get going before they release their brand new world vision? Because it seems like I'm, you're not hearing it.
2: Yeah, um, it, it depends on the candidate. I mean, I, I, I think we have heard some things from Marco Rubio. Yeah, Marco Rubio looks look very He actually looking. seems to be doing pretty well. Yeah, because and, I, and I think it's helping him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I think everyone's still worried about jockeying around that. The question we had earlier: there's 16 of how do you differentiate right. yourself among a fairly small population who's going to decide this question? Not the not the population, not the electorate, as a whole. right? Yeah. So. I think that's where a lot of the jockeying around goes.
3: It's huge. Um, Meanwhile, on the kind of Democratic side, uh, George Stephanopoulos, the anchor for ABC News, got himself into a fix because he donated money to the Clintons.
2: I don't think that's his fix, honestly. Yeah. The problem is he is a Democrat partisan and always has been. And so, you know, uh, it's it's, it's, – it's like the rattlesnake story where the, the rattlesnake says, Hey, carry me down from the mountain. <laughs> and I promise I won't bite. Oh, good. Uh, I and like then at it. the bottom, he bites him. And the, and the little boy says, what, what are you doing? He says, Well, look, I'm a rattlesnake. That's what I am. I'm here to do that. I'm not, I'm I'm not, not say saying it. Stephanopoulos is a rattlesnake. I'm just saying the fact is he has been and was a Democratic yeah. operative. The, the biggest problem for me with Stephanopoulos was he was the, the guy, Schweitzer, uh, who wrote the yeah. book. I guess for four months, was a speechwriter for George Bush. Stephanopoulos makes that a major Issue. point in the interview. Right. And I'm thinking, OK, even at the time, because for, for, yeah. every, everyone knows Stephanopoulos, what Stephanopoulos is, um, even though I'm thinking that is so hypocritical. Right. I mean, here here is Hi. a guy who ran the Clinton war room who was a, a total partisan. Right. All of a sudden saying, hey, you know, you wrote some speeches for W. Don't you think that biased you? Well, Okay, <laughs> totally. And, and
3: and was taking him on almost in he seemed to be protecting. Hillary.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, that's the overall part of it. Yeah. But that, the, you can expect yeah, that. But just, just the, the ethical kind of yeah, the, you're the, saying the, the hypocrisy of of saying, "Oh, you wrote some speeches for W. Did that not mm-hmm. bias you? Well, hey pal, what about you?" Yeah. Uh, you know.
3: And and now he's been, I guess he won't be allowed to you know, host any of the debates or
2: Yeah, although I I did hear the RNC uh chairman say that he was – Stephanopoulos was never going to be in the picture, whatever that's worth.
3: I mean, yeah, Yeah. they could always play that card. Come on. Um, Is that – but I guess that kind of goes back to our age-old issue because he's not a real journalist. He was a – he's a political hack that turned journalist and he's good at it. He does a great job. I actually
2: like him. I do too. I, I think he does. I think because of his political, yeah, uh, yeah he's more. He's, yeah. He, he he's quite good. So the, my only problem, as I mentioned, was just yeah. the hypocrisy of well, yeah, holding one guy to a different standard than mm-hmm. yourself. Um, so I mean, we've already seen, yeah. Well, I mean, if you want to look at, at at great journalists, you can you can look at Chelsea Clinton, who got six hundred thousand dollars as a commentator, I think, for NBC. I know. For and, a few and you know, finally they. There was a revolt inside saying, hey, wait a second. This isn't – you're paying her way more money than you're paying me and she's not a journalist. So.
3: Yeah. Hey, that the train accident uh, from Washington to New York. Oh, no. I'm sure you've been on that Horrible. train. Have I've been ever, on that train many know, times. Yeah. yeah. Um, then what, what seems a little irritating is every politician now jumps on that to get into the fact that we're underfunding. We're not funding Amtrak to the level we need to. Um, what's your take on that? Is this a funding
2: issue? Uh, that accident was definitely not a funding no. issue and and I think everyone it recognized that now. Seems like it was a speed now. issue. Yeah, yeah. And the real question we should be asking is why is the government funding railroads for anyway. rich people to go from Washington to yeah. Philadelphia, New York? Why? Why is that? Why is that a government mission to do that? And, mm. and I – don't understand now and have really never understood cuz it's
3: not other than that that's
2: pretty much the only leg of Amtrak that's actually succeeding. Right. Everywhere and, else is struggling. Right. And it, even it I'm not sure really makes money. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's different having subways downtown where lots and lots of people take like I I've ridden that acela many times. Mhm. Um most of the people, at least by appearance they all have nice briefcases and nice suits. They're yeah. all sitting there going from Washington They're, to New yeah. York. Uh, we're subsidizing those those people. I, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a strange it's, thing. But that, but, then, but if getting into the infrastructure question, the, the, yeah. the real question is, look, you, you need to assess really what the infrastructure problems are and go after them. Simply spending more money – I and many people will defy you today. Where did all that stimulus money go Mm -hmm. that was supposed to go to, quote, shovel-ready projects, close quote? No. Uh, It was much of it. Vast amounts of it were simply wasted. Uh, You look at the richest state in the country, California, and you drive around on their roads, which I do pretty regularly. Um falling apart. It's, it, it's some areas you see you feel like you're in a third world country hmm. uh, I drove on better roads in China did you really? uh, last week yeah. than there are than some of the roads i've driven on in, in California. so it's not
3: i mean we they make it a funding issue it's just because you know they want more funding it's a it's a they're using it as political leverage. Should we be using a national kind of tragedy as a as political leverage,
2: well, this one is particularly shameless because you know immediately people jumped on it and right. said, uh, Hey, this is clearly a funding problem, When it became clear not quite immediately but pretty soon after mm-hmm. well, no, the guy 's going one hundred miles an hour around a, around a curve yeah uh, so
3: and now they put uh, the braking on, so even in a weekend yeah they, <laughs> they can fix the problem they that they hadn 't fixed for years, yeah um. But so to me, it wasn't it also, the rails. Is no, the point? It, wasn't it seems the, like exactly. It seems like also <laughs> allocation. If I give you ten billion dollars, you get to decide where you allocate it. And apparently, they still didn't allocate it in the right place.
2: Right. They get a heck of a subsidy right yeah. now. Yeah. And not sure how much that's really improving. That.
3: What uh, is your take on that? Because at what point should the federal government be involved in any of this? Even the postal service anymore? At what point do we just kind of say, you know what? Let's let business do this. Let's let for profits come in and take over.
2: Yeah. In most cases, uh, the 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 incentive of earning a return on your investment is going to produce a superior result. To, to be fair, the post office is one of the very few government functions that's actually mentioned in the constitution. So there you go. So, so uh, on the other hand you know there's such a vast difference one of the charts we, uh, that we didn't talk about in the earlier yeah. segment is the amount of paper that is being used <laughs> from from trees and it turns out it's like going down dramatically we're using less and less paper on an absolute basis and on a relative basis so it's it's it, the postal service has to something has to happen there um because just the simple fact of email and FedEx, and, yeah, UPS, you know, UPS. These companies and,
3: know how to do it. Yeah, yeah. Is it? Um, I guess. Can you ever? Can you ever unwind any of that? I mean, how do you privatize, for example, something that, is that a, I guess, protected in the Constitution. But how do you privatize something? Like well,
2: that? the Postal Service is already privatized. It's, it's actually it is. It's, it's a private company now. Uh, it still gets subsidies. Subsidies, and uh, you know, it still gets lots of government uh, protection. I don't know about the Postal Service, yeah. but I, I would just say. Uh, Even in China, you have toll roads now. They're trying to figure out, okay, how do we get good roads? Well, there are toll roads. I drove to the airport from Kunming and I'm driving on a very beautiful highway that has a toll booth at the beginning (laughs) of it. Um, Many, many formerly communist countries are privatizing their industries, but they own everything. They own Mm. steel mills and chemical plants and copper plants. It's huge. Uh, but you have to ask yourself the question: What's the basic function of government, and is government making this activity better or not? Mm-hmm. In almost every case, you are going to say or not,
3: right? Right. Yeah. I mean, versus uh, you know, in in just industry, allowing the industry in. Um, anything else we need to talk about? Anything else on the news that you saw that politically, environmentally?
2: No. It, um, wow, I can't think of anything. I, I was very struck by your. Your conversation earlier about uh, biker gangs, Can you believe that? I which, mean does that not bring back some memories Yeah, I, th- I in thought California. they were gone. I mean I, I knew they weren't gone yeah. but, but … Uh, They're back. Yeah, that's – like you say that stereotype. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's not a stereotype uh, so
3: much. <laughs> like 200 or whatever uh, – uh, Weapons were taken, brass knuckles are back, yeah. switchblades, all these things it are sounds back. Sounds like a joke, you know. It does. A
2: bunch of biker gangs go into a bar. It does. Yeah. 200 <laughs> bikers go into a bar. It really does. And then
3: interesting, you almost think, too, call they're probably all, you know, 70 years old. <laughs> a lot of them. Yeah. But I bet a lot of them are these younger guys getting involved. Well, good to have you, Joe. Joe Cannon, everybody, go check out his website, fuelfreedom.org. Joe's on the fight to lower uh, your fuel costs here in the United States. So, uh, so you know, change your life, actually, because you'll have more money to spend everywhere else. Fuelfreedom.org. Check it out. We'll take a break, come back, uh, follow up, do a few more headlines, and then uh, get to the top of the hour. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting stuff, isn't it? Um, when you think about politics, we oh we get so hung up on it. And when I think about it, if if we can't start enrolling people to be a part of all of this, we we're going to be in trouble coming down the line because then all of a sudden the only people that care about it that even read about it are people that um that that aren't necessarily maybe doing it for the right reason, possibly. I have a, a lot of friends and family that tell me, "Ah, oh, you know, Matt, when it comes to your show, you talk about politics a lot, and I don't like that. And I'm thinking, why? Why don't you like politics? And maybe it's because we've turned it into a blood sport. It's like a biker gang. Is that what's going on, Terry? Maybe we've turned politics into just the Cossacks. If that's how you
0: say it. I've heard the exact same, the the, uh, UK elections last week, Mm -hmm. same sort of of ideal, same sort of words where it turns into a competition, my team versus your team, instead of the issues and what we're talking about and and how it affects our lives, it turns into, as we had a guest on a few weeks ago, it's my team versus your team, how are we going to beat you? Yeah, it's just, it's the Crips and the Bloods. It's just gang
3: warfare. Well, it's got to stop, for real. I mean, this isn't going to... This isn't going to work. Um, any other headlines going on? Things we need to be paying attention to?
0: Um, let me see here. You talked about uh, Marco Rubio. Yes, he had kind of a
1: he he
3: had his, a little hiccup
0: his, as well. His issues with uh, uh, kind of a flip flop with when it comes to regards of the uh, military action. Struggled to offer a clear answer to persistent questions about his seemingly fluctuating position on the 2003 invasion of Iraq. In an interview with uh, Fox News, he repeatedly said it was not a mistake to invade Iraq, but when pressed about inconsistencies in those past statements on the issue, he was fumbling for words, refuted the premise of Wallace's question, uh, the Fox News reporter, and offered up vague explanations about, quote, the way the real world works.
2: Hmm. So I guess he never well,
0: finished his thought. We, we know the data wasn't accurate. So can't you just say, based on the data, it was kind of a mistake? Yeah, I don't know what the big problem is because we – But look, they don't want to say again, that. again, hindsight, you can look yeah. back and go, wow, all the information right. was wrong. At the time, right. the argument, everything seemed to line up and it was something that possibly you – know, Maybe that's been done, what we're running so into
3: know. is people just can't admit their failure because in this new age of – this digital age, the failure is going to be recorded and reused and reused and reused.
0: A poll from the Wall Street Journal found that a majority of voters, 69 percent, don't want a president who lacks political experience.
3: Oh, really? 70-ish percent do not
0: want a weak politically –
3: uh-oh, James is mad. James, why are you so mad?
1: Because that – my hopes and dreams, I guess. Oh, because you wanted to have – You wanted to run? I was thinking about it. I was thinking about being the 17th person in that debate. Everybody else is in, so so I might as well. Just
3: go get some political experience. Have you ever run for anything?
1: No. I thought, go big or go home, you know? Go for president or go for broke.
3: Wow. Well, if you want to run, we could could hold an election or something. We could probably have you run right now for something. And okay. So then you would have political
1: experience. So, yeah, perfect. What do you want
3: to run for? Uh, Cafeteria... Monitor, monitor, yeah. monitor.
0: You make sure people are sitting down to eat. Perfect. There and you go. make sure they don't run with food in their mouth.
1: Do I have a a, a running maid? No. Or do no. I have
0: all in
3: favor? All, all in favor? Aye. I. I. The eyes uh, have it. The eyes have it.
1: Wow. You're <laughs> it. Cafeteria monitor. Man, we don't
3: I mean, even have a cafeteria.
1: That was really easy.
0: It'll be the easiest monitoring. We have a break area. room. There's Breaker a break room, monitor. Breaker monitor. Okay. So the poll respondents, both from the Democratic and Republican parties, also indicate that they were hesitant to elect a president without a college degree. Hmm. That's Governor Scott Walker. You're almost there. Fifty-eight percent of Republicans were very uncomfortable or had some re- uh, reservations about electing a president without a, a without a degree. So people are generally not they're, They want do, they, they value greed. They political. value a, a political leader that has had a college education. What? Wow. Okay,
3: but shouldn't we have also a vision and a plan? Well, and how about some experience? experience. In
0: office? Seventy percent. You have no experience, so, so you get a uh, but, Fiorina. Mean, she has no experience politically. She's wh- ran twice, and she's thing. run
3: huge organizations. But yep. shouldn't what experience do they want? That they just run for Senate for Congress?
1: Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Cafeteria worker.
3: <sighs> I don't know if they're going to count that. May not be enough. We'll take a break. Hour number one in the can, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on BYU Radio.
2: This is the Matt Townsend
1: Show. Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter
1: at Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show
2: at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
2: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
3: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt T here, your guide on the side, doing what we can on this program to give you the tools you need to go create your healthy, happy life Top of the morning to you. Today, got a great show. Would you believe that actually reporting that you are happy, feeling happy enough to report, I'm happy, leads to a longer life? If you say you're happy and you feel happy, you're going to live longer according to the latest research. And uh, science is proving it, my friends. So we'll have Andrew Steptoe will be joining us. He is out of the University College of London, and he's gonna to talk to us about happiness and longevity. You know, you want to live a long time, and you wouldn't want to live a long time if you weren't happy. <clears throat> so maybe there's something about that going on. Nobody's happier, by the way, than James Birdzall, recently married. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Carries his own choir every time we say his name. It's convenient. It's super convenient. You just kind of point it at them and. James, are you happy? So happy. How's it's how's the marriage? It's going great. You're still married. Yes. And your wife would also say she too is happy.
1: Uh, probably not super lot right now. She has got the stomach flu. Ooh. So that's kind of miserable. Are you sure it's the stomach flu? I'm pretty sure. I mean, a lot of people call that morning sickness. No, it's it's
3: confirmed Ooh. stomach flu. I mean, I'm a doctor,
1: so. No, it started happening last night, unless she's getting her morning sickness Did you make dinner? Who made dinner? Uh, We made dinner. Okay, that's it.
3: You got yourself some
1: E. coli. Yeah, probably. Hopefully not.
3: Well, we wish her the best.
1: Thank you. She's happy with the marriage, though. Is she? So happy. It's not what she said when she called me. (laughs) She's
3: like, help. It's like she was stranded at the top of Everest. I can't get down. (laughs) can't get down. And
1: I've got stomach flu.
3: She
0: broke into song like that.
1: Wow, she must have been really distressed.
0: Happiness. Speaking of happy, Terry South. I'm fascinated by these uh, this biker gang shootout in Texas. Okay, go to that because that's we all thought bikers were done. We 192
3: we were done. people
0: reportedly arrested.
3: 192 bikers in a massive biker brawl.
0: Nine people died. That is crazy. Part of it had to do with they came running out of the uh, restaurant they were in, and there were police officers in the parking lot waiting for trouble because, as I just read here, between 150 150 and 200 bikers gathered at the Twin Peaks restaurant for Biker Night (laughs) on Sunday when disturbances inside the restaurant at 12.15 in the afternoon. So Biker Night made it to 12.15 before there was a problem. By the way, Biker Night... That's going to go down in history as the worst idea in Texas. It quickly escalated from fistfights to a stabbing and shots being fired in the parking lot of the restaurant. Handcuffed bikers uh, made ways onto buses as, as authorities investigate a, sh- a shooting in the parking lot, um, multiple shootings. So you had rival gang members all in the same place kind of taunting each other, showing that they're brave and I'm going to be in your territory and I don't seem to mind. And Oh, my heavens. That's yeah. like ISIS night. It's, you don't.
3: It, it, you don't. You just don't do that.
0: Yeah. You're, it seems like they're asking for problems. Um, the police have been monitoring biker activities at this restaurant for about two months and have reached out to the restaurant's management to shut down the event. Uh, the police say they were aware that there were issues here. It was a local management here. They we told them that of the issues. We tried to get assistance and refer in uh, reference to dealing with these crowds, but they would not cooperate. Says the uh, sergeant on the scene. And in a statement from the restaurant. They said they cooperated with police, but the uh, police said that's an absolute fabrication.
3: Oh, my heavens. Well, and this this is a restaurant.
0: There's a family
3: restaurant right next to this. Kids are in there. Families are in there. It's
0: a a common strip mall type situation. You have restaurants. You have stores and... And this biker perk, night. Biker night. And Bring a biker, buddy, and we'll give you a free appetizer. Yeah, the, the pictures are – you know those scenes you see where you just have 100 motorcycles all yeah. lined up in a row? One right. of those just because you had this massive gathering of, oh, uh, of bikers. So. But nine dead, so not yes. to be no. laughed at. However, man. Just the chaos and the fact that you invite it and then the police ask you to somehow try to curtail it, somehow try to contr- control it. Yeah. And I, it didn't work for us. Well, it, so. and the police are like, yeah, we were expecting some problems. Yeah, they were in the parking lot waiting for this. Oh, boy. One quote was from a SWAT team member. I'm like, was he there before or after? Yeah, it makes you wonder. Yeah, I'm not sure. Hmm. Uh, new this morning, Senator Lindsey Graham has decided he will run for president. Lindsey Graham's in. He told CBS this, uh, this morning, I'm running because I think the world is falling apart. I've been more right than wrong on foreign policy, he adds. See, but he meets that criteria. He's experienced. He has a degree. He's a lawyer, isn't he? Yes. So, He says his top priorities will be working with Democrats to go after radical Islamists before they come back here. Working to get them out there. Get them out there before they get here. He joins a Republican field, as it says is increasingly crowded, includes Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Mike Huckabee, and Rand Paul.
3: By the way, uh, so, all, all senators except Mike Huckabee. Yes. So far, it's pretty much a GOP senatorial race. And also
0: Rick Perry is set to make some governor. sort of announcement. Former yes. former, former governor. governor. He's making some sort of announcement coming up uh, June 4th. Okay. His intentions will be known. And the statement comes after Perry's wife, Anita, tweeted on Friday that the couple has been discussing the future of this great country and how our family can play a role. Huh. Great. Uh, governor Kasich, yep. from Ohio, Ohio, virtual certain to join the 2016 he's race. He's going to jump in the race as well. ABC News, citing sources, uh, later CNN confirmed that he is very likely to join the race. He's the one that Joe Cannon, you know, says he would be watching for.
3: Governor, uh, he's a governor, past Congressperson, congressman that helped balance the budget with with uh, Newt Gingrich. He's the real deal. So. Future. From Ohio, one of the big states you got to pull. Yeah,
0: and that, that's mm. that's why they think he has – he's a real possibility because Ohio is so important. Oh, to plus the we have
3: uh, Carson.
0: Uh, is that his name? Oh, right. I forgot you had uh, Fiorina. They said – Fiorina. Names including. So they left that's off right. Fiorina and they left off – Ben Carson. Uh, ben Carson. Man. So increasingly crowded. This is getting fun. Uh, in uh, Hillary Clinton's last financial disclosure report – it put her and her husband's estimated wealth between $4 million and $20 million. That really? was in 2012. Yeah. This is now the couple have in the last 16 months earned more than $25 million in speaking fees tied wow. to more than 100 paid speeches, plus another $5 million in book royalties. Wow. NBC News notes this puts them in the top one-tenth of 1% of Americans. Well, they had a great year. The numbers come from a personal financial disclosure filed under the Federal Election Commission last year. Uh, last week, such filings are required of presidential contenders. How the New York Times frames the news, the, disc- the disclosure could create challenges for the former secretary of state as she tries to cast herself as a champion of everyday Americans in an era of income inequality. Everyday Americans
3: that made $25
0: million in a year. Right.
3: But see, I want them to run and win because then I would get this a better chance at having higher speaking fees because they would be out of the market. Right, so rising there. rising tide lifts yeah, all ships, then I'm right? going to go for the $600,000 speaking fee. There you go. I wonder what I – maybe you need to be a past president to get that one. <clears throat>
0: hmm. Yeah, I don't think if they didn't have the president part that yeah. people would really care. Yeah, you wouldn't have known Bill Clinton. Right. Well, he was a governor. He was a governor. Okay, cool. And American pharaoh yes. won the 140th Preakness Stakes on saturday putting him on track for a shot at winning the triple crown here we go three weeks he was the favorite to win the race after defeating the competition of the kentucky derby earlier this year he is the only horse with a shot at the triple crown since 1978
3: i thought we had a shot last year that's
0: what i thought too so
3: but it seems like uh no one can win this last race what is the this last one um is it the derby is it the Kentucky Derby? Is that the last one? No, the
0: Kentucky Derby was first, then the Preakness, and then there's one more. That, is that the Belmont? The Belmont that they that is such a long race that they all like have to take a nap. Well, and, and last year the guy that they had a shot, he was complaining because uh his horse races all three other horses are coming in just for that race just racing those and so they're not as fatigued they're not going through all this stuff that the other horse is and so uh, he thinks they have an unfair advantage i heard that he was deflating the oats and he was screaming and if you remember his wife came in and grabbed him and pulled him away yes knock it off stop yelling that's why we need a great you're embarrassing (laughs) you're embarrassing
3: us don't do that uh interesting well that's cool a little sports news for you my friends See, we bring it all to you You, today you're going to get everything you need next though we're going to be talking about uh happiness would you say that if you self-report as a happy person you're going to live longer the research actually shows uh it does my friends and uh interesting thing especially later in life if you feel happy it's going to increase your longevity We'll be getting into that with Andrew Steptoe. Uh, He is a director of the Institute of Epidemiology and Health at the University College of London. More with Dr. Steptoe. Happiness and longevity up next right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, outside of the normal pre-checkup chit-chat that you have with your doctor, have you ever been asked by your, you know, medical doctor how happy you are? Have they ever asked you that? Uh, Well, guess what? Your level of happiness may be something to be considered as influential for your overall health. Recent research shows in a study monitoring self-reported happiness and its correlation with general health that people who were happier lived longer. Joining us now is uh, Professor Andrew Steptoe, Director of the Institute of uh, Epidemiology and Health at the University College of London, who uh, participated in this research. Uh, Professor Steptoe, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Hello there. It's great to have you on the show. Now, you are, you are researching um, happiness as you know as it's it's basically cited by uh, you know the person in the study and, and their and their health and their longevity now how did you get into this study of studying happiness and a person's longevity
5: well it's an interesting topic uh, i've had a quite a long period of doing research particularly on stress and depression and other bad aspects of people's lives and how those might impact on health um, and so we thought we'd actually look at the other side of the coin and uh, have a look at well-being and uh, more positive features and whether those might be protective uh, as far as health is concerned.
3: Huh. So, yeah, so you were taking kind of the, the positive psychology approach. What are the positive drivers, happiness being one of them? What did you find in the research?
5: Well, we've done a, a number of analyses of this sort, where what we do is we use some of our large cohort studies. These are studies of many thousands of volunteers, older people, who volunteer to take part in our studies, And we ask them about happiness um, in various ways. We either ask them uh, if they're enjoying themselves or we've asked them on a kind of moment-to-moment basis how happy they are. And then basically what we've done is track people over time. Uh, And uh, our studies go on for five, six, seven years. And because this is an older sample, some people pass away during that time. And so that allows us to look at the association uh, between the original happiness at the beginning of the investigation, and survival rates.
3: And you found then, I think you broke the groups into three groups, right? Just kind of overall health and happiness? Uh,
5: we, uh, yes, we divided people out into three groups just for convenience. So we had a, the highest happiness third, if you like, and the middle happiness third and the lower happiness third. Uh, and what we found is that survival was uh, longer um, or put it the other way, mortality was greater in the people uh, with low happiness. Hmm. Now one of the obvious possibilities here is that it's simply a a, a correlation with something else. Uh, Say, for example, the uh, late least happy people were older than the others or already had uh, illnesses, then you might expect them to be more likely to pass away during this period. So we had to do quite a lot of complicated statistics to take those sorts of factors into account. But the, the bottom line is that even when we take those factors into account, we still see this protective effect of uh, positive uh, well-being and happiness.
3: Was it um, – it's interesting. So there's the correlation. Was the correlation with that they just reported themselves as happier? Is, is it just they perceive that they're happier or is it that they actually are statistically happier?
5: Well, that's, that's a very difficult thing to judge because happiness is, of course...
1: So subjective. subjective
5: ...experience. Yeah. You know, we, we don't have a gold standard. We can't measure in someone's brain, you know, this is a happy brain and this is an unhappy brain. Right. Um, and But what we have done is look at this in a number of different ways. We've asked people in general how much they enjoy their lives, and we've also done studies, uh, like the one you're talking about, where we actually asked people several times in the day how happy they were. Um, and of course, you know, people vary a lot over the day and maybe vary between days. And if something as bad happened, has happened to them just before we ask them, they, you know, they may feel less happy than usual. But it's interesting that even with those momentary measures, we still see this association with survival.
3: And you found that um, the, the happiest and the medium happy type of people were 35 and 20% less likely to have died.
5: Uh, That's right. That's after we've taken uh, the other factors into account, things like um, their – well, I suppose their social position because people with more money tend to be – a little bit happier than those who who, who have less money. Uh, people who are married are very typically happier than those who aren't married, um, and of course, people with uh, health conditions may be uh, lower uh, lower in their happiness. Hmm.
3: Is it is so? When you consider the research, kind of from this more positive approach, is is it having the happiness factors? Is it a better indicator of longevity, or is it more about not having negative factors?
5: Well, that's a very interesting issue, and, and I suppose it's one of the ways we uh, came into this because we, we, we already know that people who are depressed tend to be at higher risk for a number of different health problems, but not being depressed is not the same as being happy. Right. So you can have someone who's kind of in a neutral state, neither one thing or the other, and so if you ask them about depression, they say that's fine, but if you ask them about happiness, they say no, not very much. And so we were quite interested in whether... Uh, we can see associations with the more positive states, even when we, uh, as it were, take account of those negative states such as depression and anxiety.
3: Yeah, because it seems like depression and anxiety um, and even, uh, you know, economic situations and overall health, those seem to be what we historically would study to see someone's longevity.
5: Yeah, these these things are all very closely bound up because obviously, you know, it's quite difficult for someone to say, to say they're depressed and happy at the same time. Yeah, I mean, they yeah. tend to be. Um, uh, but we're looking, obviously, at gradations of this sort of thing. And um, most of our measures we have of something like depression don't really take into account the positive side. You know, they really, it's the presence or absence of, you know, of negative things when you're measuring depression. So knowing about happiness, I think, does add something important here
3: did Did you see with your the the people you studied? again, we we're, we're visiting with Andrew Steptoe, who is um, a professor at uh, the University College of London. He's also the director of the Institute of Epidemiology and Health at the University College of London. Um, but uh, Professor Steptoe, did you notice were people able, because I know you measured their happiness you know throughout the day, were these people able to be consistently more happy? than the others, or is happiness something that kind of ebbs and flows?
5: Well, it does ebb and flow if if you measure it in a momentary way, you know, how happy are you right now? Yeah. Uh, one of the striking things you see is that there's a, a variation over the day, um, so when people wake up, they're typically less happy than later on. Um, you know, I don't like to speculate about exactly why, my, why that might be, sure. but it is... Uh, definitely the case that uh, on average uh, ratings go up and uh, in our hands in another studies they tend to reach a kind of peak in the early evening whether that is coincidental that that's the end of the work day. I'm not quite mm, sure. But yeah. um, uh, there may be biological rhythms in this sort of thing as well. So we have to take account of those kind of factors. And, uh, and clearly, if you're measuring, if you're asking people how happy they are across a day, um, you'll get a lot of variation just due to you know, personal things that have happened to people, they might have a row with somebody or they might lose their keys or something like that, uh, you know, and so um, their ratings on that particular day may not be completely kind of typical for them.
3: Do you have any idea the impact, because you were measuring uh, from groups that, that were um, a little bit older in age, um, do you sense they would have the same effect on, on a younger generation?
5: Well, there are some studies of younger people, but, of course, in studies of younger people, you're, you're not likely to be able to right. look at uh, mortality as an outcome because very few younger people, fortunately, uh, die. But what you can do is look at some of the biological factors which we think are related to health, Uh, you know, things like stress hormones, uh, bits of the immune system, how they work. And there is some evidence that in younger people as well there are associations between the positive well-being and uh, these aspects.
1: Hmm. It really
3: is. I think it's such an interesting idea that we we are finally studying not just the negative factors but also, I guess they call them the hygiene factors, like the positive uh, factor of happiness, or at least uh, measuring your happiness as a predictor of longevity. Um, any, and when you look at it, too, what's, what, what's the next step of this study?
5: Well, I think I, I should emphasize <clears throat> that when you find this sort of effect, you can't say it's a causal effect, right. you know, you're measuring one thing at one time, and you're looking at mortality over a number of years. And we try our best to try and work out, you know, if there are other factors that might be complicated or explaining the the association. Uh, but even even if we deal with that, you know, we can't be completely confident that it's a causal effect. The only real way to show causal effect would be, you know, if you could, you know, randomise some people in the population to a happiness condition and some people to a
6: less mm-hmm. happy
5: condition and see what happens to them. So uh, we have to be careful in that way. But the I, I, for us, the next stage is, is two things. One is to try and understand a little bit more about what people are dying from. Uh, and the other is to understand the mechanism. You know, what, what is it that translates something like a feeling of positive well-being or you know, excitement, exhilaration on the one hand, and health on the other hand?
3: It's uh it's really it's such a it's an elusive topic isn't it because we've had on the show even recently ideas about you know uh some research out of BYU for example about people that feel lonely and how it right. impacts their mortality rate and also um we've we've also discussed optimism versus pessimism and I mean some yeah. of these some of these ideas that have forever been, you know, these these standards of, you know, like more optimistic people are are healthier, but not always the case. You know, sometimes you don't need optimism, you need realism. What uh I mean in a weird way you're taking on the fact this age old wisdom of, you know, being happy makes you healthy. And and yet and it's interesting too because you're studying it as an epidemiologist. This is, you know, you you're taking this on. And why? Why is this your area of focus?
5: Well I think we have to think as an epidemiologist we tend to think in terms of the health of the population at large. Epidemiologists don't tend to deal with individuals and their health problems, they tend to look at this a broader uh, spectrum of factors that might be contributing to health. So for example studying air pollution would be the sort of thing an epidemiologist would do. Mm. Um, and whenever you're doing that sort of thing you're talking about risk factors, you're not talking about the cause of a problem. So it's not the case, for example, that everybody who is exposed to a toxic chemical is going to get ill. What you tend to find is that there's an increased risk of becoming ill. And so the same thing happens, I think, with positive uh, psychological states as well it 's definitely not the you know the be all and end all and uh, I, I think it 's important to emphasize this because you don 't want to end up with a situation where people who don 't feel very happy then feel guilty about not feeling happy because they think that 's going to be <laughs> you know bad for their health right. um, you know, it, it 's one of many factors that, that that are there, but I think it 's important to study things like happiness and loneliness and and optimism, partly because they are things that can probably be. Modified. They're probably things that can be changed in the population. And so we might, um, you know, apart from the, the sort of uh, measures we take to try and encourage people to be physically active and things like that, maybe we should be taking measures also to try and think about people's emotional health
3: yeah I, I and it's it seems like now we can we've, we're getting the data, like in some of the studies we've done here at BYU, we're actually starting to be able to evaluate the brain in certain situations and actually get some tangible data that before we weren't always getting in some of these, I guess softer topics, softer sciences.
5: Yeah, I think that's right. There's a whole series of different scientific methods you can use to explore these issues. We're using in this study, the very largest scale kind of investigation where we look at many thousands of people and look at very serious health outcomes, such as mortality or survival. Uh, But then you can use more focused methods, for example, brain scanning to see what's going on in the brain and people with the different uh, types of uh, emotional state. And we can also look at uh, biological responses as Well, in people's bodies and how they respond, Mm. and we really need all these different methods, I think, in order to pin this issue down. Mm, Totally, and and I and I actually
3: appreciate that you're you're looking at this. This is, you know, it, it seems like historically the negative side, the negative attributes are. Drivers may have been the things we always focused on, and yet these, this, this positive side is just as important. We're going to take a break. Again, we're talking with Professor Andrew Steptoe. From, uh, the, he's the director of the Institute of Epidemiology and Health at the University of College London. We'll take a break, come back, we'll be discussing how uh, our age may even be impacting our sense of happiness as well. As we age, are there certain things we should be doing to maintain a happier approach to life? That plus more up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Professor Andrew Steptoe. And Andrew is uh, one of the great uh, researchers that's talking about a study on your happiness and your longevity. He's the director of the Institute of Epidemiology and Health at University College London. And the study we are looking at um, was a a study simply about... Older people that uh, report themselves as feeling happy are up to 35% less likely to die, according to the study. Now, it's not just a perfect cause-effect type of thing, but, uh, you know, happiness improves, potentially here, longevity. Is that what we're learning then, Dr. Steptoe?
5: Well, as I said before, I wouldn't like to make the, the claim that one thing is causing the other, but it certainly does... Uh, look like a, it's a very strong association.
3: It's an influence, isn't it? Is
5: it? Talk to us about
3: um, a, a kind of more of a senior generation. I, is it different for them? Um, just from what you know and the, and the other studies you've been doing. What are some things that they should be paying attention to when it comes to their happiness?
5: Well. Everybody has uh, their own you know, personal factors that are going to influence their happiness, so it's quite difficult to draw up a complete prescription on this. Um, we do know some general things which are important, and I suppose first and foremost are social relationships. Social relationships are really the kind of bedrock of positive well-being uh, in terms both of personal family relationships and also of friends and other people around. And I think uh, broadening out further than that, we find that people who remain at older ages engaged more broadly in society, you know, interested in things, participating in groups or other things, also tend to have higher levels of happiness.
3: So, so that really kind of it, it infers involvement, not just you know, being done kind of with life, but being socially engaged, being involved in a passion, and having a passion, that seems to
5: matter. I think that's important because it, it... Many older people, as they age, become a bit more socially withdrawn. You know, their social circle may be reduced, possibly because of deaths of others, or because they they you know they retire, so that they don't they no longer have their work uh, social relationships. Um, children may move to somewhere else. All these things tend to be uh, you know be going against uh, maintaining social relationships. And I think one of the things that that middle-aged people maybe don't um, appreciate as much as they might is that social relationships are things that have to be worked out. It's not just a, yeah. a question of, you know, so-and-so will always be there because, you know, in, unless you make the effort as well, um, those relationships won't be sustained. So it is an active process, I think, uh, that's important.
1: Yeah, uh,
3: of, of relating, of having and finding your passion as well. Are there other, Are there other indicators? I mean, I guess health, overall health, I guess, especially well, health, the health that you're entering yeah. in at that stage
5: health and disability uh, all have uh, important influences. Uh, we think that genetic factors are quite important. You know, some people just seem to have a more kind of happy or optimistic temperament than others. And so even if uh, bad things happen in their lives, um, they tend to, um, to to come up again after a, after a while. Um, but I also think possibly, you know, uh, aspects of, of having kind of A purpose in life, you know, a a sense of meaning in life Hmm. also seems to be a a very important component. And um, that meaning may come from many different things, you know, from quite minor things such as, you know, looking after a garden or, um, uh, you know, doing a bit of voluntary work or or some more major kind of issues. But we do find that people who feel their lives have meaning and purpose tend to be uh, happier as well.
3: Do you and do you sense that? Um, I mean, this is something with the with the baby baby boomers and the aging generations. It seems like it's something we we'd really want to be paying attention to if we if we're going to watch the health of the population.
5: Well, one of the major issues, as I'm sure people uh, listening to your show know, if they've heard about loneliness, is the way in which uh, our society is moving towards uh, uh, a kind of lonelier structure, in the sense that that more and more people, particularly in middle age, are living alone who didn't used to before mm-hmm. because uh, marriages, it's, it's acceptable now, if you like, for marriages to break up and for, for partners to go their own way. And uh, there's been a big increase in people in their 50s and 60s who live alone compared with uh, uh, previous uh, times. And that's not only in, you know, in this country, even if you think about uh, somewhere like Japan, which has a... Um, Always had a very strong tradition of, uh, you know, children looking after parents and a a very strong strong family structure. There have been big changes there in the proportion of older people who are living uh, with their children uh, compared with those living alone. A large increase there. So it's it's not just in in our Western society that this is happening, I think. Hmm.
3: It was interesting. Yeah, I I read a study that said 55% of the population in Sweden live alone in their
5: homes. So I mean, yes, you,
3: sure. that's I'm a younger I'm generation, I'm sure. too, probably. Uh,
5: that's right. That's right. And um, uh, we, we have uh, studies here in this country showing that about 40 percent of people uh, age 65 and older, their closest companion relationship, they say, is to their pet. Hmm. Um now, it's good having a pet, clearly, um, yeah. particularly for those people. But, you know, it's, it, 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 it's what I was talking about in terms of effort. And I think it has to be made on both sides as well. You know, children tend to think, oh, their parents uh, are doing OK, you know, and they're enjoying their retirement or older age. But they still need to uh, make sure that they keep those connections going, even if it's not, you know, even if it's just a, a phone call, um, you know, it, 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 all, all those sorts of uh, um, relationships are important. To keep going,
3: yeah, and, and like you said, and, and the, it's it's harder. It's it takes energy, it takes effort, which is interestingly maybe something that could keep you alive. Um, having to work at something, um, fascinating uh, stuff. Oh, go ahead.
5: Yes, that's right. No, I I I, I think that you know it, that's part of the kind of active engagement with life. I think that that it, that is important to uh, to try and maintain. I think. Mm.
3: Well, we appreciate you again, Professor Andrew Steptoe, uh, and, and your great work there. Keep it up again at the uh, University College of London. Wonderful insight, folks. Um, being happier, not not a cause effect, but there is some relationship between your reporting of feeling happy and uh, and health benefits that, uh, that will follow. Uh, very, very interesting research. We're going to take a break, come back after the break, do a Coach's Corner. We're going to get into Some of the conversations you need to be having, if you're if you're getting ready to retire, um, and and you and your spouse want to make sure you have a a real go at it, a shot of surviving the retirement, there's a few conversations you probably ought to be having. We'll talk about that up in the coach's corner after this break. Welcome back, friends, and welcome to the Coach's Corner. Uh, in this uh, segment, we like to give you some some real life coaching, some ideas, some tools. We just had a wonderful study presented to us by Andrew Steptoe about uh, as we're aging, our happiness levels, right? And so, as part of that, I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, retirement. A lot of couples end up retiring, and it's you know it should be a great, a wonderful, blessed event. Because now all of a sudden you've got nothing but time to just – you and your honey to just live together and be happy. The reality is many people haven't even talked to their spouse for years. And so now we're supposed to make this work? And one person may have been the kind of stay-at-home person and the other was out in the workforce. And now you're going to come home and inject yourself into their life at home? So four conversations that we need to worry about as we are uh, thinking about retirement. And so, if you're an empty nester, it's an interesting statistic about your your divorce rate at empty nesting stage. Apparently, the divorce rate goes up about sixteen percent when you and your honey are left alone with no more kids in uh, in the uh, in the nest. Is that crazy? Sixteen percent increase simply because. Now we've got to work at it, as Andrew was saying earlier. The hard thing about a relationship is they demand work, and many of us haven't been doing the work. And so here's four conversations that if you're thinking of retiring, I would sit down and I would have each of these conversations. Don't think you're going to retire, then have the conversation. I'd first have the conversation. The first conversation is what I call the resources conversation. That is about how you are going to live on a fixed wage. With one or both of you now retiring, it only makes sense that you're not going to be able to live at the same financial level that you were before. In this conversation, you should discuss the financial realities of your world. You should evaluate a bunch of different things, your health care benefits, where they're going to come from, how they're going to change, your Medicare, your Medicaid, Social Security, rainy day funds, insurance costs, your cost of living. Is it time to to get a smaller home? Are we going to stay in the home? Is the home paid off? What are going to be the future changes that need to be made in the home? Are we going to uh, need to put a new roof on the home? What's going on? But start discussing this. I'd get very clear about what your actual inflow of money will look like, and I would do that before you walk away from another company. You know what? You'd, you'd think like, well, no duh, Matt. But that doesn't always happen. Do you know the inflow of what your money's going to look like? What will your outgo look like? Are you going to have a rainy day fund to take care of that house? Is it time to get the house on the market before we need to be making some of these major changes um, and, and the major, you know, breakdowns of certain uh, equipment in the home? What does our budget need to be in order to balance the inflow and the outgo? You've got to figure that out. Part of the uh, resources conversation is what are the needs and the wants that we both have? Does one of us really want to travel a lot? You know, travel may cost. Do we have a budget for that? Are we going to buy a motorhome and become members of the Good Sam Club and travel all over the country? Is that going to be an expense we need to pay attention to? What are some extra activities that are going to come up now that we have more time? Should we just continue working part time? You know? information very basic conversation think about it have you had the conversation by the way that's a great conversation to have whether you're retiring or not by the way every one of these are Um, another second conversation i'd be focusing on after you've had the resources conversation have the time conversation you know many times one of the biggest surprises is how much time you are actually going to be spending with each other and a lot of people when you first fell in love that was great oh my word it's so exciting Because we have nothing but time together. But you've kind of grown your own identity. You've grown your own hobbies. You've grown your own needs. You need to go figure out how much each other is going to need. How much space will your partner need every day? you got to figure out what your time is versus their time, versus our time. I would not retire and assume that we're just going to be together. I I promise you, I've seen many a couple, once they're together, it, it goes south. Because now we, now what? Now you're going to look at what I'm doing and you're going to start judging how I spend my morning. You're going to watch those shows all morning. Get out of your chair. When are you going to go work on the yard? You've got nothing but time. So your schedules are going to matter. What time do we go to bed now? You know, what time do we wake up? How much time alone do you need every day? What does a tentative schedule look like? I'd break down your schedule. What are the times that you might call sacred every day, inviolable, that, you know, your partner should not be messing with? There might be certain shows you love. There might be certain lunches you love to go have that your partner is not to mess with. So the time conversation. Another conversation I love is the distribution of work conversation. This, by the way, is one that you should have with your spouse today, regardless of whether you're retiring or not. We tend to not serve equally in the home. The research shows that while we are dating, women do a little bit more work than the men do. If they're, if they're cohabitating, for example, women do a little bit more work than the men do in the home. The interesting sad research is once they marry, men do significantly less home, work in the home than the woman does. Married people do not distribute the work evenly, especially if one partner works outside of the home. So you need to have a conversation. Are we going to, how are we going to distribute the work every day? You got to have clarity on this one because a lack of clarity is going to cause nothing more than pain. So how are we going to distribute the chores? We're going to discuss who's going to do what, who's inside the home. What are we going to do inside the home? Are we both going to work outside of the home? What happens with the automobiles, the family, the grandkids? You know, who's going to make dinner every night? Who cleans up the dinner? I would very specifically go through each part of this. And if we like doing it together, you know, you know, multiple hands make lighter work, right? So, here's some questions you could ask. Who's responsible for what chores around the home? Who makes the dinner? Who cleans up? How many times should we eat out versus eating in? What is one activity that uh, you both have been doing for years that you want to quit? Talk about it. Who puts together the family parties? Whose responsibility should that be? Who sends out the birthday cards? Who pays the bills? Who does the grocery shopping? All different ideas about how we're going to distribute the work. So, so far, look at that. We've talked about how we're going to have our resources. Do we have enough? What will it look like? The time conversation, the distribution of work conversation, and last and certainly not least, probably the most important conversation you can have if you're about to retire, and Andrew Steptoe brought it up, it's the legacy conversation. The legacy conversation for me, critical. Okay, because this is going to now shore up that you're going to say, great, let's say we each have 15 to 20 more years in us as we're retiring. What do we want our legacy to be as a couple, as an individual as well? What are your goals? What are your dreams? What is your new purpose? It's an exciting stage. Where do you want to invest this time? What do you want people to say at your funeral? What do you want that legacy to be? This is where we can really tie it up. This is where our passion should come out, as Andrew Steptoe was talking about. Um, this is where we start discussing what do we want our children to say about us, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. You've got the time now. Now we need to maybe strengthen some relationships. We need to start you know, working on ourselves emotionally and spiritually and mentally, financially, physically. All of these are, are resources we can be using but what motivates you? That's a great question at this stage. Share it. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Talk about it. What do you consider your most important responsibilities and relationships at this stage? Boy, what happens if one of your kids has a real blow-up with their spouse or passes away, heaven forbid, and you get to raise the grandchildren? Is that your legacy? I'd throw these crazy questions in there because if you talk to people long enough, that's what all these couples are going through. Grandparents are picking up more today than they ever have. What is the purpose of your life? If I put a microphone in front of you and just said, hey, what is the purpose of your life? What would you say? What would your spouse say? Do you think you'd be on the same page? Because if we don't know the answer to that question, what are we doing how do I know how to manage every one of my days if I don't know what the purpose of my life is? What is the lesson, one or two, each maybe one of each of you, that you want to teach to the rest of the world? What do your grandkids need to know that only you could teach as a grandparent? And what lessons do you still need to learn? Basic questions about your legacy. By the way, these are just conversations, right? But my belief is it's a conversation that changes the game. That's why we do this show— because we want to change the conversations. So as we work on our resources, as we work on our time conversations, our distribution of work in the, in the marriage, and our legacy, every one of these conversations makes us stronger. And please, listen to what your partner is saying. We've got to figure out what they want, because one of the rules is uh, mutual benefit— has to be there. We both have to be benefiting if we want a long term relationship, right? So if this is about you controlling the resources and not letting your partner have any access to money, you're going to have problems. Or if the time if you keep encroaching on their time, or if you're not sharing the workload evenly, you're going to have issues. And we don't want issues because it's not going to make us happy. And according to our earlier research, we need to be happy in order to have longevity. Folks, that's the coach's corner. I highly challenge you, suggest that you get out there, have the conversation. And you know what? You don't need to wait for retirement. Legacy, distribution, time, resources. Four conversations, one relationship. That's the coach's corner. Thanks for joining us, my friends. We're going to take a break, uh, come back, do the headlines, and get into hour number three of the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show. Call
0: the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr.
2: Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio. Good morning,
2: friends.
3: Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach. We do what we can on this program to give you the tools. To find your healthier life. Holy cow, don't we need that? It's not easy, folks. It ain't easy. Uh, There's so much going on. You're such a busy person. Last hour, we talked about uh, happiness, how it comes from, and your longevity is tied to your happiness. Today we're going to get into some, this afternoon we're going to, this segment, we're going to be getting into uh, some great work by Elisha Goldstein. He's going to teach us how to actually do it, how to get more mindful, how to become a little kinder in your life. We need it. It's hard. And you know why? Because if they had just had it back in the, uh, at the biker, you know, celebration in Texas. Bike day or bike night, they called it. Bike night. A bar had a bike night. It's a sports bar. So restaurant. Restaurant, sports bar, family family fun. Right. But they invited, they had bike night and 200 bikers. Is that how many showed up? Between 150 and 200. The numbers are sketchy. It's hard because that's a lot of parking for bikes. Yes, it is. And then you have the, the favorite uh, tip one over and they just domino all down. Yeah. You just tick somebody off like in Dumb and Dumber. I think that happened.
0: Well, in remember. several movies. Pretty much in every movie that has a bike in
3: it. That has a bike in it.
0: So, this out of the New York Times, as this story continues, more details come out as the morning progresses. Authorities in Waco, Texas are partly laying the blame for a deadly biker brawl this weekend, which claimed nine lives and led to the arrest oh. of 192 people at the doorstep of the restaurant where the melee began. The restaurant's managers allegedly did not address the police's repeated concerns about allowing rival gangs to hang out there, and apparently went out of their way to court bikers. This is a press release. They this, went uh, this out was, of their way. This was a release from the advertising this weekend from the restaurant. This says, in a, "This is from the New York Times." In an announcement about the restaurant's opening, Twin Peaks, the name of the restaurant, yeah. promoted the location as the ultimate man cave with at least 55 flat-screen TVs. As recently as last week, the restaurant advertised Bike Night on Thursdays and promised, uh, you know, bites, bikes, the hottest place in town, that kind of thing. (laughs) So come on in; we have all these TVs, we have a man cave. Yeah, and they purposely went after these motorcycle gangs. Why? Maybe they know them. I don't know. I mean, I get it. They seem kind of defiant when the police are talking, and then they come back and say something contradictory. And the police are.
3: It's sad because we have audio of what was going on in the bar. There was a song being sung. Is that right, James?
1: Well, uh, this is actually just a lot of snapping. There wasn't much singing. It was just a lot of snapping.
3: This was going down in the bar before the.
4: Shoot, man! Go!
0: Whoa! This is—it's like the dramatic music. Oh, oh. Was this the was this the fight you were talking about? I don't know. This sounds more choreographed, if you will. This, a lot of snapping going on. Mm.
3: West Side Story. This is the West Side Story. Oh, is that what
0: this is? Okay. Yeah. Not The Sharks and the Jets. Waco, Texas, Biker Brawl?
3: No, not the oh. Banditos and the other ones. The Cossacks.
0: Cossacks. I trying to think, what was the other? There was five biker gangs there. Nine
3: people died. Yes. They started shooting. What kind of marketing person's like, this is a
0: great idea. It's a great idea.
3: I mean, seriously, we joked about it in the first hour, but it's like having ISIS
0: night. You don't do that. You're asking for a problem. And that's what the police were trying to say. That's why they were on site before it happened. They knew it was
3: happening. Interesting. This is the second story out of Texas where we've invited – Provoked something possibly? Provoked something. Yes. No. Was it just a mistake? Because you could make money by just having – uh, Dallas Cowboys night.
0: Well, I don't know. The, the details of why each of the gangs were there at the same time, yeah. no one's really addressed that. It was, it was, did they invite each of Maybe them? Maybe it was a summit. Maybe did, they're having a summit. Did two of them show up and the other three decide they were going to show up to cause problems? Hmm. You know, none of this is being, being discussed. Nothing about what was actually going, happening in the restaurant. Was there taunting going on? Was there a fight? What escalated yeah. the problem? A All we of, know is something happened real fast and it went out in the parking lot. But a lot of people
3: didn't know the gangs still happened. They just thought it was the Jets and the Sharks back in the day. Right. It's still, they're still going on. Biker gangs. Biker gangs. By the way, that, there's that movie, the, the Netflix, what's it called? Um, Sons of Anarchy. The TV show. Yeah, that's like supposedly that. We should all know because of that, I guess. Well, if you watched it. Maybe that's why. This person I, watches it and thinks they're I, not as I, dangerous. I wouldn't
0: recommend it. Mm. it. There's not really a lot of redeeming value in the show. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Being someone who watched the entire thing. <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, that's great. Let's just warn everybody. No redeeming value. Don't watch, Don't
3: it. watch it. Instead, go watch Granite Flats. I right. started Granite watching Granite Flats.
0: Matt. It's on Netflix. Wholesome family not viewing. Not
3: bad gang. Yeah, that's great.
0: You still get your spies and little sci-fi stuff. A new report from the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General concludes that the Transportation Security Administration, mm-hmm. otherwise known as the TSA, TSA is not properly managing the maintenance of its airport screening equipment and therefore cannot be certain that the machines are ready for operational use. What? Nevertheless, the TSA has still managed to spend 1.2 billion on maintenance contracts that it now admits maybe didn't actually fix anything. Ah. Here we go. But it's – but they're still gathering
3: behind a screen giggling at you when you walk through. Well. And you still are getting violated every time they – OK. I'm going to have to take you aside for personal pat. I think we're calling this a personal pat.
0: <laughs> I don't want a personal pat, Larry. Are you carrying any concealed
3: weapons? <laughs> uh, no. We're not sure if the equipment works, so we're going to need to do this the hard way. <laughs> oh, Big no. Guess. OK. Great. So TSA
0: lost maybe a billion dollars. Court documents filed by the FBI suggest that a U.S.-based hacker gained access to several flight computer systems and even briefly changed the flight path of one aircraft. Are you kidding? Chris Roberts, a U.S. security researcher, stated that he thereby caused one of the airplane's engines to climb, resulting in a lateral or sideways movement of the plane during one of these flights, according to FBI agent Mark Hurley. Over the past four years... He also accessed the in-flight entertainment system of around 20 flights. The hacks were not authorized by authorities. So he hacks through those entertainment systems and then gets so, the flight controls. The way I heard an, uh, this further explained this morning, he's sitting in like first class. Oh. And he reaches down and pops a little access door on the wall of the airplane, plugs his computer in, and accesses the computer. Oh, and some of the systems. The so he's oh. on the plane. And he's able to access Holy because cow. of these entertainment systems. Now, there's some question on whether he's some sort of a, a consultant that you bring in to try to breach the system to see if yes. it's possible. He might be trying to prove it. Or did he do it by himself? Why would you? Yeah. But there's some question on whether you can actually access the, the flight controls from the passenger right. area and then cause one of the engines to, you know, yeah. ex- uh, as it says, climb. You tell it to you know the increased thrust. Yeah, that's can scary. You, can you have that kind of control? It's kind of sketchy on the details that way. James says yes, but this is all and he from runs a, our board. But this is all from a warrant that the FBI had out. Oh for this man, guy's crazy. Okay, okay. wow. One more. You get one more. One more. Authorities say a trail of macaroni salad led away from a Western New York restaurant, helping police track down three burglary suspects. The owners of Bilderberger told Livingston County Sheriff's Office that their surveillance system had a cash register and a cash register had been stolen. So the surveillance system... And the cash register. And apparently some macaroni Deputies salad. Deputies checked out a nearby hiking and biking path. They found the cash register parts, surveillance system parts, as they tore it apart for what they wanted. Rubber gloves, loose change, and a steady trail of macaroni salad. Police say they later <laughs> learned that the three men stole a large bowl of the salad, took turns eating it while making their getaway. The suspects were in custody. day later all three charged burglary, criminal mischief, and grand larceny. Macaroni salad. You know what? That's fantastic. Who thought, who'd think that you could get in trouble with macaroni salad? Well, Larry, you, I swear you're dropping macaroni salad. If you lead it, leave a steady trail, Yeah, then they just follow it's the It's because they have I one, one of those
3: huge macaroni salads. You, you know,
0: that's why you shouldn't eat like a pig. Could you see and them? Me? Always told one me that. guy's tearing apart the surveillance. One guy's got the registry. The other guy's no. shoveling no. macaroni no. salad. No. Then they rotate. No. <laughs> Yo, it's your turn. Here's the macaroni salad. I'm out of macaroni. You must have spilled half of it, Larry. You ate too much.
3: Oh, that's crazy. Good job, cops. Way to track it down. Cops can track macaroni salad a mile away. That's awesome. Good stuff, folks. Hey, there you have it. Easy, easy peasy right there. Quick little update of the news. And uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Elisha Goldstein is going to be joining us talking mindfulness, kindness, and happiness. The trifecta. The three things that uh, we need to make sure we're balancing if we want to uh, live a happier, healthier lives. That's up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, mindfulness has been in the news a lot lately. Uh, it's, it seems to be just kind of the end-all, be-all answer to everything. So we wanted to bring in an expert who could who could walk us through how to do it. When we talk about mindfulness, you know, sometimes we, we just use the words. We don't even know what it means. Now, here's an interesting definition for you, okay? Mindfulness is defined as a mental state Achieved by focusing one's awareness on the present moment while calmly acknowledging and accepting one's feelings, thoughts, and bodily sensations. It's used as a therapeutic technique. You know, there are probably plenty of times we don't necessarily want to be mindful, like when we're on our way to the dentist's office, for example. But in the end, um, we're, we're going to learn about the benefits of mindfulness today from today's guest. We're asking, uh, we've got Dr. Elisha Goldstein joining us. Uh, he has a, a great website, but he's a blogger and a, a, and a true blue expert in mindfulness. He's also the author of many best selling books. One of them is Uncovering Happiness, How Depression, uh, Overcoming Depression with Mindfulness and Self Compassion. Elisha Goldstein, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show.
6: So great to be here Matt. Thanks for having me.
3: You bet. And it, truly, I mean mindfulness, it's everybody. I'm hearing it everywhere now. Is this are we having uh is this like a coming of age of mindfulness? What's going on?
6: Well, you know, in, in some ways it, it is. It's a, it's a it's a response to some degree of the completely uh overbooked um, age of distraction that we're we're living in right now where there's, there's more to pay attention to than ever before in history. There's more things that are grabbing our Attention. We're we're finding that we have um, less ability to actually pay attention for any sustained period of time um, because we're practicing and repeating, kind of flipping between tabs on our phone or flipping between tabs on you know a variety of different things. Short snippets are um, far more appealing to you know even just the older generation as well as the younger generation now, and people are feeling overwhelmed, just like a computer would feel overwhelmed if it had too many things open at once. And so it's almost like a, a counterbalance in some way to be able to kind of settle in and find some very practical, um, useful way of grounding and paying attention to what matters.
3: It's powerful. It's not. I mean, people might say, "Yeah, you need to be more mindful," but th- there's real, true skills and and tools that that are part of this. It's it's a discipline, really, more than anything, isn't it?
6: Well, the discipline's a way of life um, yeah. in some way. And in, in other words, there's different ways of kind of looking at it. There's the discipline of of setting time aside to actually do what I call maybe like a mental floss in some way, um, to uh, do kind of a daily practice, to kind of ground, connect to yourself, be more aware of, you know, what's happening in your mind and body and your environment, um, training yourself in this way. I mean, mean, as you were mentioning a moment ago, I mean, the corporate world is, um, you know, taking off with this. I created a a 12-week mindfulness at work program that Aetna and Mark Bertolini bought and... um, Hmm. To you know, all of, all of their corporate clients, so thousands and thousands of people are taking this live program in their cubicles um, week after week. Wow! And it's seen it's seen with veterans, it's seen in the army, it's seen in politics and education. Um, right now, all the way from kindergarten, well, actually all the way all the way from preschool um, through graduate school, uh, it's it's um, it, it's doing that because it's being proven effective um, at helping people. Uh, um, regulate their emotions, um, pay attention to what matters. And the other part that's really fascinating that I think is part of the reason why there's this exponential rise is it's showing that we can actually use our minds to change our brains Hmm. in very effective and positive ways. And I think people are really excited about that.
3: So, I mean, really, I guess changing the brain means that we can now start treating, you know, potential uh, issues like depression with mindfulness. Um, and maybe even anxiety with mindfulness is, is that what you mean? It, it it actually impacts our brain.
6: It's giving a lot of people a lot of hope in that way. So I'll give you an example. So, you know, this, this is what really led to me writing the book, Uncovering Happiness, which was, you know, looking at some of the neuroscience and looking at what happens in somebody's brain who is chronically stressed over time or depressed. The brain looks the same in either, in either way, because depression is really the symptom that the, the, um, the base of it is really like, uh, stress. So, uh-huh. Uh, and so we see that by being able to recognize what's happening and be able to name it in a particular moment, which is a moment of mindfulness. It's a mom- mindfulness, by the way, just so we're all on the same page. All that means is really awareness. Yeah. Um, it's the it's really the mental state of awareness. Then there's the practice of it, which is intentionally paying attention to something, which is kind of what you were talking about um, in that in- initial definition, intentionally paying attention to something while putting aside our program biases, seeing things fresh, new. That's how we break free of old unhealthy patterns is that's the I guess that's the gift of mindfulness in that way. And so what we're finding is that when we are become when we become aware in a given moment, like, oh, I'm caught in this trap right now, this mental trap that, that's here. What happens is there's an area of our brain that's the emotional center of our brain. Um, you know, some people call it the limbic system. A big part of that is this area called the amygdala. It's in the center of our brain. And um, and it fires up when we're feeling fear, agitation, among other things. And the area right behind our forehead, this prefrontal area, is the part that's involved with our emotional, reg- our emotional regulation. And so um, when we're able to name something and bring awareness to it, what happens is we bring more blood flow and activity to this prefrontal area that's involved with emotional regulation. It's like mm-hmm. the CEO of the brain. And we calm down that area that's firing up around fear and agitation so that we can kind of have some perspective, be aware of our choices. Have impulse control, so we don't fire off those, you know, those those emails that we wish we can get back. <laughs> yeah. So, I know. I know Google and Gmail and some some other services allow you to take back your email um, <laughs> now, which is really great. Uh, but we can we can learn to train ourselves to have this more healthier reactivity.
3: It's really um, it's 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 awareness that uh, helps us to kind of I guess become and direct ourselves to be a higher type of being in a way, a less reactive and a more kind of intentional being.
6: You know, it's interesting that you say that because, um, you know, for a while now, one of the things that I've been espousing is that we're in a real evolutionary kind of thrust right now as a species. And, you know, sometimes we we need to kind of hit, um, you know, a real difficult time, you know, in order to be able to grow from that. Just like, uh, you know, just like that that Chinese sign um, for crisis is the same for opportunity. And so, uh, and so we're in kind of, in some ways, a, a crisis of attention uh, to some degree. We, we see it with parents and kids. Um, we see it in the workplace. Uh, we see it just in our own lives of just feeling overwhelmed with too many things to pay attention to, as I was mentioning earlier. And, and so, uh, so here's this opportunity now to be able to harness and strengthen um, certain neural circuits in our brain that allows us to intentionally pay attention to what matters and react in a healthier way. Now, one thing we know about genes and gene expression amongst generations is that if someone experiences a trauma, let's say you know the Holocaust or something like that, that that gene, those genes, their genes are changed. They're expressed differently because of that trauma, and oh. that's passed on from generation to generation. Oh, interesting. Generation. Yeah, and that's a, that's how our brains have been formed over thousands of years to pay attention maybe to the negative more than the positive, mm-hmm. um, because we have to pay attention to what's fearful to survive um, versus pay attention to what's wonderful to be happy. You know, in other yeah. words, we're not not trained, we're not wired to be happy, we're wired to survive. Right. Uh, it doesn't matter if we're happy, if we don't survive, we don't pass along our genes. And yeah, so,
3: we're kind of more um, wired to, to see the snakes in the garden than the flowers.
6: That's exactly it, because if we're sitting there just paying attention to the flowers and there's snakes in the garden, <laughs> we're not going to pass on our genes to them. That's right. So, so that's what's happened generation after generation. So now, here we are in a generation right now that more than ever, you know, you see it in mainstream culture, you're seeing it in mainstream media, this, is, this, this kind of longing or movement towards um, this idea of learning how to pay attention to what matters, learning how to be more present to our lives. And there's more shops and places and teachers available. Now, that's the key. You want to find a good teacher for this stuff. But more teachers available and being trained in this to be able to bring it into all the different industries um, that we have. And so you can imagine if people are doing this and they're kind of using their minds to change their brains, change the way their genes are expressing, they pass that on from generation to generation to generation in the in the you know decades and centuries moving forward. We're going to see an evolution of our, I mean, this is a, you know, obviously a radical statement sure. to make, but you know, we're going to see an evolution of our species because we're always going to be changing. We're not, the way we are right now isn't the way humans were 500 years ago, right. 1,000 years ago. We've, we've changed the way we look. We've changed the way we, we think and move. We've changed, and so we're going, to, we're going to continue to change. And so this is a really positive thrust. And, and how we're changing,
3: hmm. and, and and again, it's it'll be handed down. So yeah, you can imagine that if if we can create more mindful, more um, I guess present, attentive, uh, less negatively biased humans over the next five hundred years, I mean, you can see that the the evolution of that could be, I mean, enormous, phenomenal. Your book, Uncovering Happiness. It talks about the negativity bias. Is that what you were just explaining, is we are just – we tend to be negatively skewed as humans in general, mainly for survival.
6: That's right. It's not a bad – and it's not a bad thing. I mean, we're we watching. It's working, down.
3: right? I mean, it's worked. <laughs> it
6: worked. It worked. It helped us survive all these years. That's yeah. That's right. You know, if we're walking down an alleyway and you're walking down a you know dark alley and you, and you see a dark alleyway and you see a sh- someone swinging a shiny blade in that alleyway, you're going to have an instinct to kind of move away from that and not walk down that alleyway. That's, right. that's healthy. That's adaptive. It, where it becomes not adaptive is when you know we were, we don't get a, a text back from um, <laughs> you know someone we just wrote that we we're looking to go on a date on, and all of a sudden the rest of the day we're ruminating on maybe right. what I did wrong in the last date and how terrible. And, this is never going to work out and my relationships never work out or whatever. And, uh, and then it sticks with us. Then all of a sudden we're distracted. We're not doing as well. We're not as focused in our life. We're generally not happy. Yeah. And, uh, and so to be able to be make that less sticky and to be able to have perspective so that maybe we can be more grateful for what's good, you know, a practice that, you know, is oftentimes overlooked, but, but set all over the place is, you know, a regular awareness of like what's good in life in someone's life and being able to recollect that, because think, think about this from a, not to bring too much neuroscience in this, but think about this from a brain perspective, um, to be able to reflect on what's good in our lives and be able to imagine you know, what's good, so bring our senses to it. Mm-hmm. We're lighting up different areas of the brain around that memory. Our memories are what's used to create perception from moment to moment. In other words, yeah. we see something, it reaches, that that image or sound or or feeling kind of reaches back into our brain to reference uh, all of our memories to be able to say, what is this? How do I feel towards this? Is this good or bad? Should I move towards this? Should I move away from this? And so if we can, as a regular practice, this, this kind of like more experiential gratitude practice, intentional, so we're bringing mindfulness to gratitude in some way, to be able to say, what's good in my life? And to reflect on and even visualize as many senses as we can bring to it, the better. What we're doing is we're shooting neurons uh, um, in a particular direction around that part, around that memory in the brain. And and as this uh, Canadian psychologist once said, Donald Hebb, neurons that fire together wire together. (laughs) We're wiring together um, more uh, uh, that that memory and that part of the brain so that we can uh, more readily reference it. And when we're feeling well and we have more feeling that things are kind of good in our life, we're more resilient. Mm. And when we're more resilient, we're more productive, we're more focused, um, and we generally just feel happier. Yeah. Right? And so that's all within us. And so that's why I kind of titled that book Uncovering Happiness, because all of these kind of natural tendencies, these natural kind of happiness factors, um, sense of core, sense of confidence, is all in us. It's just about accessing it and nurturing it. Ah, like it's beautiful. also noticing those seeds and watering them.
3: Yeah, and, and, and yeah, and letting letting what's natural to us grow. We uh, having a great conversation with Elisha Goldstein, PhD, author of the book "Uncovering Happiness: Overcoming Depression with Mindfulness and Self Compassion." He's helping us understand what's already inside of us. It's there, folks. We just need to figure out how to get rid of kind of the excess of it, uh, the stuff we don't need. We'll take a break, come back more with Dr. Elisha Goldstein uh, on Uncovering Happiness right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. We are on the phone with Dr. Elisha Goldstein right now. He's a psychologist, author, speaker. His goal is to help us uncover happiness. That's the name of his latest book, Overcoming Depression with Mindfulness and Self-Compassion. Uncovering happiness, folks. That's it. Uh, And he's got a really, um, I think, a very helpful uh, understanding and approach to mindfulness. A lot of times we always kind of, we get into the talk about it and we it becomes squishy or whatever and something that we don't quite maybe always relate to. But the reality is understanding how your brain works and, and being able to slow down some of its reactivity by being more aware, more mindful, um, it, it, can, it can unleash some really powerful things. It can also maybe... Um, offset some of our more natural types of tendencies to be more negatively biased or even scarcity-minded. So again, Dr. Elisha Goldstein, welcome back to the show.
6: Oh, great to be here.
3: Love having uh, this topic and love having you on the show. Again, people, they got to go to your website, uh, com. It's got so many great resources and tools, courses, videos, audios, stuff that you can watch and listen to, and, and so much of it just free tools to help you through this. Uh, talk about um, a little bit more about the self-compassion side of it. It seems well, like if we're negative towards everyone else, yeah. we might take that same bias towards ourselves.
6: I mean, here's the, yeah. So here's the thing around around that. So self-compassion let's <clears throat> let's just, sorry let's just define it to begin with, which is just a recognition of our own struggle in any particular moment, a difficult moment that we're having, with this inclination to want to support ourselves in that moment. So in other words, an inclination to understand what we're needing. And to be able to give ourselves what we're needing so we remain balanced um, and we get the sense that we matter yeah. <laughs> enough, to, enough in this world and that we there's a sense of belonging and that um, that also is a pillar uh, to feeling balanced and happy in life. So mindfulness and self-compassion are the two pillars, the grounding for what I say for un, un, unlocking our brain's natural capacity for that inner sense of confidence that's there. And, uh, and so one thing we know about um, uh, about the way the, the, we, we operate kind of with that negativity bias is that when we're not feeling well, when we're feeling stressed or sad or agitated or, um, or afraid in any particular moment, we, our brain has a natural tendency to want to avoid what's uncomfortable and move toward what's comfortable. And the number one way the brain avoids our uncomfortable feelings from stress, again, from stress to fear to agitation to shame to guilt, you know, these different things, is to try and fix it. Hmm. And so the way it fixes it is by reaching into the past, rehashing past events um, that are related, so negative events, or catastrophizing into the future and thinking up the worst case scenario that could be so it can plan for that. And the problem is what happens is is it oftentimes criticizes ourselves for certain ways that we're feeling, um, which makes us feel worse, and it's trying to do that to tell us that this is this is wrong or bad, the way we're feeling, so let's fix it. But oftentimes if we're, te- if we're, if we're hearing the, the things like we're no good or we're never going to amount to anything or, um, you know, what an idiot we are, that kind of stuff, um, it makes us feel worse. And so we can't really focus and feel right. and bounce back quite as soon. And so self-compassion is the opposite. It's like saying this. Uh, you have a kid that comes home and they had uh, and they came back with a report card. And the report card had, you know, a bunch of A's and B's and a a D. And so there's three ways we can approach that as a parent. Um, and this is just, again, a metaphor. One is to say, you know what? You got a bunch of A's and B's. You got that D. You tried the best you can. Good job. You know, yeah. Get them next time. You know. The, the next way is to say, um, you know, uh, you got a DM, that report card. You better shape up. This isn't going to work out. You'll never get into college with this. You better try harder. Another, so uh, in those first two, one is like kind of letting someone off the hook. It's like indulgent, indulging somebody a little right. bit. It doesn't? It's not really that effective. It's a nice thing to do, but it's, you know, it's. it's in other words, it's called foolish compassion. Hmm. Um, it's like going to an alcoholic and saying like, "Oh, you have the shakes. Here's some alcohol. to yeah. make you feel better." Um, the other one is is being really critical and harsh, which makes someone close down, makes them more stressed. Um, that when it comes to stress, we're not so focused. We know that. The other way, the third way, which is like a middle way, which is saying, you know what, you got these A's and B's. I'm really proud of you for this. You did a great job. You worked hard. Look how this has paid off. And then we also notice that you got this D, and the D's not gonna, the D's gonna hold you back from getting into the colleges that you want to get into. Um, so, uh, tell us how we can support you in getting that up. Hmm. So, those are three different ways of doing that. Self-compassion is the last one, which is wow, you know, this is, you, you've, been, you've been trying hard, but this is a really difficult moment. You know, in life, there's difficult moments. This is like a three-step process. One of the leading researchers in self-compassion is a woman named Kristen Neff, and she's done a lot of research at UT Austin around the effectiveness of self-compassion and, and, and motivation and focus and stress reduction and helping people not relapse into depression. Um, and, and so it's saying this is a hard moment. In life, there's hard moments. You know, it's part of a human thing. Um, how can I be kind to myself in this moment? What am I actually needing right now? Um, Not that extra drink, not that that direction, but what am I needing right now, and how can I give myself that?
3: And do you need, Um, is it kind? Is it, I mean, you don't, because this could seem like this is where you get into storytelling and you you make it an illusion, um, or you make it into something that's not real. You're saying, just recognize that, yeah, you know, you made a mistake. This is hard. This is hard. and, and, And be able to, not turn it into an excuse, or not turn it into uh, just let it be what it is.
6: But not just not even just that. It's, it's let it be what it is. Um, so in a particular so in a particular moment, what, what we want to do is diffuse the spiral that could, mm. that could be taking us away from what matters. Yeah. And so the, the way we do that is by is by a, a formula that helps create balance in that moment. So self compassion is something that is, that is a very practical strategy that helps create balance. And so it's basically saying, it's basically bringing mindfulness to the moment, which is saying, okay, this is a difficult moment, I'm naming it. So I'm bringing activity, as I was talking about before, activity, the, the, area, the prefrontal area of my brain, that executive function center, the CEO, the emotional regulatory part of our brain. I'm diffusing that amygdala, which is like the fear center of our brain, by naming what's happening Well, this is a difficult moment, not making it too complicated. Mm-hmm. In life, there's a difficult moment, I'm impersonalizing this a little bit, so that helps kind of diffuse it a little bit. And then the question is, what am I actually needing right now? Do I need to get up and take a 15-minute walk? Do I need to separate from this situation? Do I need a hug from this person that's yeah. in front of me? Um, do I need to put my hand on my stomach and take a few deep breaths? Do I need to go into the video section of ElishaGoldstein.com and do one of his short meditations right, <laughs> right. to help help balance me? Um, you know, what do I need right now? That's the key. And you know, a great just resource for everybody is there's a uh, uh, this guy, Marshall Rosenberg, who, and this is also all in Uncovering Happiness, but Marshall Rosenberg created a a, a, a whole approach called nonviolent communication, and, and whatever the approach is almost doesn't matter, that on, on the website, if you Google this, nonviolent communication, again, this is all in Uncovering Happiness too, but uh, but you can get this on the web if you want to as well, which is, um, it, it has like a needs list, an inventory, and mm-hmm. we're not so versed in what we're needing usually, because we don't grow up. Learning about any of that right um, It's not taught in grade school certainly like you know someone who's m- my age We never got that before and so a little bit more now like we're like we're, we're starting to bring it into schools more now um, But so we actually have to kind of learn about this for the first time also around emotions we, you know a lot of us don't have a, a very good vocabulary or or um, education around emotions our emotional intelligence is very low and so mindfulness helps really build that, which is very effective with in, in leadership and business and a variety of different places of education.
3: And so but, self-compassion so is and figuring it. out that need, right? And, and
6: figure out that need. Figure out what you need. Give yourself that need. Um, and then you're going to be more balanced yeah. in that moment. And then with balance, what happens is you're more aware of your choices. You have more perspective in that moment. And this can all happen in a matter of like one minute, three minutes. You can learn and train yourself to get rebalanced and that mindfulness and self-compassion in difficult moments is key you know and so maybe maybe what you're finding in life in general as you do that you're really not aligned with you're really not aligned with your values you don't know what your values are maybe you do but you're really not walking alongside them right. people who tend to be happier tend to be aware of their values in life um pro-social values values outside of themselves like how are they giving to the world maybe and then living alongside of them or maybe they don't as adults, we don't get out and play very much, and so we're aware. We start to become more aware of that. Like, how do I? Yeah, how do I give myself that? I'm overstressed. I'm overworked. Um, I need to be able to uh, play a little bit more. One thing we know about play, which is a, a new burgeoning uh, area of study in science, is that it it can thicken the cerebral cortex, which is involved with cognitive processing. And hmm. uh, so, again, giving yourself that space to have a little bit of fun in life. Yeah. Um, uh, actually makes you more effective at the work you need to do.
3: Which, which interestingly, is compassionate, self-compassionate, because sure, you're, you're not is, beating right. yourself up the entire time while yeah. breaking yourself down.
6: That's right. You're turning the volume down on those stories, those negative stories about yourself, and you're, you're, you're in other words, you're getting out of your head and you're getting into your life.
3: Yeah, yeah. Man, powerful stuff. Again, we're talking with Dr. Elisha Goldstein. Go to his website, uh, ElishaGoldstein.com, and, Elisha, as we wrap this up, tell us – I always like to know the one thing. If there's one thing we could do – I mean, one thing is very simple, but what's the one practice we could maybe implement today after hearing you and listening and learning that would, that would start this journey into more mindfulness?
6: I would say here's a very simple practice, and this is one I've been giving out for years. Um, and, uh, and it's something you can do anywhere, anytime. And you know, so here it is. It's a very simple practice to stop practice, the one minute practice. Uh, you can also get a, see the video of it on my on my site, totally free. Um, but uh, so it just stands for. I, I would do this three times a day as an experiment, just to see what you notice. What you want to do is you want to interrupt the autopilot of everyday life, and, and become more in practice becoming more aware of what, what matters in the moment and what you're needing in any particular moment. Hmm. And so, and this is all depend- This is all personal to each person. So we're stopping. That's the S. You take a few deep breaths. That interrupts the autopilot. In that moment also brings more oxygen into your body, regulating your blood flow. Take a few deep breaths. Observe your experience. In any given moment, three things are happening in your experience: your body is feeling sensations, you're having an emotion in that moment, whether it's calm or AI agitation or um, or or sadness or joy or whatever. So observe your body, your sensations, your emotions in that moment, and also whether your mind is busy or it's calm or what's on your mind, really. So you're stopping, taking a few deep breaths, observing your experience, body, emotions, thoughts, and then your P is for proceeding, and you're proceeding by asking yourself the question, what's most important for me to pay attention to right now? Mm. Am I paying attention to what really matters in this moment? And what am I needing? And if it's a difficult moment, what am I actually needing in this moment? And just see what comes up. Again, don't have any expectations for a result or an outcome. What you want to do is you just want to experiment with this and see what you're noticing. Because ultimately what you, we really want to come out of this with is a sense of trust and a sense of self-reliance and that um, we can become our own teachers. Yeah. Because ultimately we all have, uh, when we think of the word antidepressant, we oftentimes think of a pill. But we, we have these natural antidepressants that if we pause and pay attention, we can tap into uh, and grow and open up to really a life that that feels worth living.
3: I love it. Um, it really, it's and, and again, you heal yourself. You're going to heal from the inside out, like you were saying. We're already we already have these tools. We just need to uncover them. Well, we appreciate it again, uh, Doctor Elisha Goldstein. Great stuff. Wonderful book. Uncovering happiness, overcoming depression with mindfulness and self compassion. Go check out his website, Goldstein dot com awesome site lots of free stuff to uh to practice skills courses wonderful tools Ah, stop what a great practice to go start working on and starting to live your life with uh with more intention powerful powerful thing we'll take a break come back and uh get into this a little bit deeper i think uh, a little bit of the coach's corner up next this is the matt townsend show right here on byu radio Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. (laughs) Working 9 to 5. Nobody works harder than the two gentlemen down at BYU Sports Nation. Spencer Jerem, this song reminds me of you two.
1: Well,
4: thank you, but I think think that it's debatable as to who works the hardest here.
3: Well, I think you do. There's no (laughs) debate about it.
4: Okay. And
3: uh, any fun sporting events? Did you guys happen to see Steph Curry's half-court shot?
4: Uh, the 65-footer.
3: Are you kidding me?
4: Yeah, that's what he does. That's unbelievable. That's cray-cray. It's just what he does, man. Is that what he does? Yeah, apparently they practice that all the time, too. Oh, really? Yeah, they asked him about that in the postgame. I, I do, said, too, yeah, but I never fun, hit but... the backboard. So his teammate, his teammate was asked, like, were you... He's surprised that he made that, and he's like, "Well, I mean, you have to be a little bit surprised in a game scenario, but you know, the fact that it was Steph, it's, it's certainly he's more likely to do it than a bunch of other guys." Yeah, so it's oh, jeez, like, yeah, he's the MVP, man. That's the what dude, happens. He's magic. It's he's good is staff, magic, man.
3: You guys are magic. Come on, <laughs> hey, um, fill me in. What's going to be on your show today? I mean, Holy is cow. this this? Uh, I bet you there will be a really good question. Yep. Is there, it,
4: there is a great question.
3: Are you going to let me in on it?
4: Yeah. What? So over the weekend, I found an article. Um, came across it from uh, the Lincoln Review Star or something. Whatever. Anyway, it's in it's in Lincoln, Nebraska. It's their home newspaper. Asking the question, can Nebraska would Nebraska face a, a potentially top twenty five team in their opener? And I was like, huh? Is BYU going to be ranked in the preseason top twenty five? I thought no way. But I was like, well, Sports Illustrated yeah. ranked them in the post spring power rankings.
3: What's that? The twenty third or something, right? Yeah,
4: number twenty three, and so, but that that made me think: Does BYU even deserve to be ranked after another eight and five season? Do they well, deserve to be in the preseason top twenty
3: well, five? Why are they? There's a reason, right? ESPN's thinking something.
4: Well, Sports Illustrated is thinking Taysom Hill is what they're thinking, and it's this
7: oh, isn't an it. official preseason poll. It's just, it's just yeah, two dudes, you two know, dudes that, on their couch, yeah. You should, see, you should see one of the guys like, oh, that's the guy? Oh. It, was, it was funny. <laughs> um, but it's interesting. It's food for thought because BYU does have, BYU has street cred as a football program. Plus, when you return a dynamic player like Taysom Hill, mm-hmm. BYU certainly in the conversation. I'm of the opinion that BYU will not start uh, as a preseason top 25 team, but will be just on the outside. But I think do they deserve it? Do no. they deserve it? No. Eight wins, no.
3: Yeah. But they were, they were booming with Taysom, right, before exactly, he got injured. Exactly, my, right. and that's my angle. See? Is, oh, oh, you guys are going to fight. I can fight, <laughs> fight, fight. It's going to be a great show.
4: That's what we do. You don't fight. <laughs> Sports Talk Radio, baby. It's, the, it's part of the premise. The great debate, man.
3: Well, I think um, you guys are easily in the top ten.
4: Hey, thank you very much.
7: Of National University Simulcast, Actually, of which of, there is only one. No, of actually the people that talk to me. <laughs> Oh, okay. That have, that have TV
3: and radio shows.
4: On a regular yeah. basis? We talk that people that talk to you on a regular basis? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. So like your wife is number one? 945. She, my wife's six.
7: <laughs> well, <at least laughs> She's number she six. Hey, football's fifth to Bronco Hall, so there you go.
3: Really? Oh.
4: See, we I learned, learned so much.
3: It. We learned so much with you guys. You're going to have a killer show. Let's get real.
4: We're looking forward to it. And, it's a good way to start the week.
3: And then do you have a, a full schedule this week as well? Do you, a, lot, a lot of baseball, a lot of softball, a uh, lot always,
4: of... Always. BYU Baseball qualify for the West Coast Conference Tournament. They have another random Monday game today. We'll tell you why it matters so much that they, they find a way to win. Or
7: why they might just try and lose it.
3: Really? Yeah. Like I love it. the
7: opinion they might just lose it on purpose. Wow. I'll tell you why during the show.
3: See, it's almost like you guys are teasing us to watch your show.
4: It's Isn't exactly. Weird? Isn't that weird how Or it works? listen to it. And it, how we talk to you, like, right before our I show know. comes
3: on. It's like, and it took me, like, four months to figure it out that you're not ever going to answer the questions. You're just going to tease me.
4: Yeah, pretty much. That's what we do.
3: Bunch of teases. <laughs> that's what you two are. Jeremy's <laughs> well,
4: been dealing with that his whole life.
3: <laughs> well, at least he's getting comfy.
4: <laughs> well, have a great
3: show, gentlemen. You got it. Thanks, you deserve Parker it. Man. Take care, Little guys. The devil
4: do you. Happy Monday. <laughs> See you. Bye.
3: That, that's what they've been doing, James. They've been teasing us. Hmm. Great show. They've just got it going on. We pushed them to the edge today because of time. So that's why we didn't get as much time with them. I had five stories I wanted to share with them. I got one I got to share with the rest of us. Holy cow, folks. Uh, Check this out. Um, Ridge Quarles is an employee for Qdoba restaurant in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, this guy, seriously, he's become my hero of the day. You know, we like to end the show with heroes. Ridge Quarles is a worker for the restaurant in Louisville, Kentucky. It's called, I believe, Qdoba. Have you ever heard of that, James? No. Qdoba. Um, Ridge began noticing a woman with disabilities that would come into the restaurant often and decided to get to know her. So one day, as Quarles was, uh, uh, went over, wheeled, wheeled her to the table where, where she sits, and brought her food to her, she kindly asked him if he would be willing to help her eat. Without even thinking about it, Quarles put on some gloves and began helping the woman to eat her food. He fed her, basically. Dr. David Jones was also eating at the restaurant at the same time when he saw the act of kindness and he decided to get it on video. He told NBC News that Quarles didn't stop to think about it. He didn't ask like, well, should I help her? Should I not help her? He just went over, put the gloves on and started feeding her. He began uh, recording the moment so that he could send it to all of his friends and remind them that there are still some really good people left in this world. So for you, uh, Ridge Quarles, you are the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. Truly, folks, we need more guys like Ridge, don't we? Um, We live in this day and age where lawsuits abound and, you know, potentially we'd like to serve you, but we can't because uh, the lawsuits, what if she choked on the food that Ridge was serving There comes a point, folks, where uh, in this world we've got to just be who we are and be healthy and be willing to reach out and to serve and to care. Um, It it really doesn't uh, go away. It reminds me of a of a brand new story I saw that uh, was released about um, some guys who, you know, they were in a church group, just a a church, uh, and. There was a woman in the congregation who was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and I'm going to post a video of this, this on my Facebook page today. Um, so if you want, just go look up Matt Townsend on Facebook, and you'll, you'll be able to watch this video. It was just a church group, and the, the, the men in the congregation were asked to go help this woman, because this woman, when she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, her husband left her. He just couldn't take that. Couldn't handle it. So it ended up causing a divorce. And uh, over time, every year, she got worse and worse, where she's now to the point that she's uh, in a wheelchair and she can't basically get in her own bed at night. And so at night, members from the congregation, two men would come over every night, lift her and put her into bed, and lift her and put her into bed. And it's just a really interesting story about how the men processed it. And they go through interviewing all of these men, and it's a very motivational video. But one of the things that they ended up talking about was at first they were mad, like, you know, there's a point where she she just needs to have some more permanent care given. So they need to find some more permanent solutions because, you know, are we going to just have two people from the church come over every night and put her to bed? Also, they talked about how awkward it is. I mean, it's awkward. You're putting a, you know, a 60 plus year old woman into bed every night and it's it's, you know, you're not used to doing that. Plus, she felt bad because they weren't with their families, all of these different things that were going on. Well, after seven years of doing it, these guys are still doing it. But what's happened is they've become become changed because of it. So they kind of have lost their ego about it. They're no longer fighting it. They now see it as an honor to go over and put this woman to bed every night. And they lock her house up, and they make sure everything's right, and she's got her pills and her water and everything she needs, and... It's just now service. But there's something really powerful about watching it. So I'll have it on my Facebook page, and I want you to be thinking about it. We always bring up these great heroes, but every one of us at some point in our life have these opportunities like Ridge to just serve somebody, whether it's helping them into an elevator, whether it's stopping and pushing a car that's that's out of gas or that's broken down you're doing it all the time. And I just want you to start noticing more of the service that's going on in the world. We live in a crazy day and age where there's a lot of information about how messed up everything is. But in reality, we've got a lot of great examples. So we need to start paying attention to it and be willing to lose ourselves in the service of others. And when we do that, guess what? Amazing things happen. In the end, too, we end up becoming different. We change because We are serving. We're losing ourselves. So hero of the day, again, Ridge Quarles uh, from Qdoba Restaurant in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I honor you. I also honor that great uh, group that you'll see in this video that's willing to lose themselves, even a half hour a night to go put somebody that, that needs it and and help them find some rest. And again, to all of you that are now, because of an assignment from the Matt Townsend Show, you're going to go out and start looking for chances to serve. Maybe more importantly, just start noticing the good in the world. That's the reason we do the program Monday through Friday, 9 to noon Eastern Time. It's also, uh, you can podcast it, go find it on iTunes or tune in. Send it to your friends. Our goal is to help you find the good in the world, to live longer, to love stronger, and to lead a healthier, happier life. Until tomorrow, my friends, take care and be good.